0: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mukigana-Harrington, joined to my North by Northeast by Mr. Brandon
0: Howard Thurston. BHT, how are you today? I'm great, movie How are you? I've been to the doctor's. I've had my flu shot today. It burned, but I'm over it and I'm, I'm here and I'm ready now. I went to the thrift store this morning
1: and uh, bought a laser disc copy of the movie Clue. Really? For $4. I'm very excited about this, even though I do not own a laser disc player. You don't have a device to play it on? No, wow. but uh, like... like uh, wrestling memorabilia. Sometimes you you obtain things, even if you do not have a practical way to enjoy them at this time. Well, you could
0: always just frame it and then put it on the wall. It's
1: you know, it's so big. That's actually part of it. It's I was like, this is much bigger than the DVD or the the VHS copy because it's this beautiful big picture. So I kind of love that. So. I'm very excited about having that, and I'm, you know, increasingly interested in purchasing a ridiculously obsolete uh, Laserdisc player for the purposes of just scanning through this disc to
0: see if there's any d- inconsistencies or changes from the versions I've seen. I wonder if it's like VHS players, do they even sell, v- like they, they stopped making the last VCR you know, uh, a little while ago, right? So are Laserdisc players even being produced?
1: Oh, being produced? No, but uh, there was a lot created back in the day, and there's still, you know, there's one of my favorite things is going on and just like learning about, you know, fringes of electronic culture where people have, you know, they they cobble together Betamax repair shops and, you know, all the other strange uh, uh, analog devices that have been made over the years to uh, play things that are funny. Like, did you know that there's like even like a physical like LaserDisc, of course, is is like a CD-ROM. You yeah. know, it's it's, it's, a, it's it's a big DVD. But,
0: yeah, for a but did you? There.
1: But did you know that there was like an analog version of like it was a record that would play physical
0: would visual play video? media. Oh wow, like yeah, final record and so that would it, play video.
1: sort of yeah. It was that technology. I think it was called a video disc, and uh, it would only last like a hundred times. And the problem is like it, it's very difficult to like they they wore them out just like a record would. Wow. Uh, so they were, they skipped a lot and they were completely analog, but yeah, it, was, it just kind of fascinated me the idea that, you know, digital media, I understand that idea of
0: printing it, but people went as far as to even try to print physical media that would do it. I'm trying to remember like how, so how big you're talking about how big it is, is it, a, a laser disc is only about as big as a record or in my, yeah. in, okay. In my memory, yeah, I imagine, it, just like a record. I imagine yeah. it being like really big. I remember like my science teacher in like eighth grade saying, we're going to watch a laser disc today and like holding up this <laughs> giant DVD is
1: like, Oh my God, what is that? so yeah uh so i found that this morning that that pleased me um both you and i have been uh terrible stewards to our wrestlenomics audience because uh during both raw and smackdown we got numerous tweets from people oh. being like i i ch- can't wait for Muki gana and brown brandon howard to uh weigh in on this stuff and i think both of us responded with a uh invocative what what are you talking about what happened what's going on No, oh. yeah i was out training and I was I was at, I was actually still at work that night. Oh, that's right. Very late. Yeah. yeah so it was a uh, crazy. But that that's kind of the topic we chose for today, which is the fact checking Roman Reigns yeah. and Vince McMahon, or, or more broadly fact checking the claims made in the promos by Roman Reigns and Vic, Vince McMahon. Not that we're going to attach the veracity of the to the characters themselves. What does that mean? Well, we're not saying Roman Reigns, in his heart of hearts, wrote oh. this promo and said oh, it. Oh, yeah. His character on television delivered this. This is not George Berrios making a claim to Newsweek in an article.
0: This is a character on a television show. Right. And I don't want anybody to think that we're uh, what we're saying here is they really believe this and that's what they meant, and I, especially with uh, one of the things Reigns says that we're going to go through. It's clear that they're just trying to get through another week of TV, so we're not taking this super seriously, but, but it does raise some interesting questions, I think, about w business that we can try to answer. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's gone in this direction of
1: the work shoot um, promos. Uh, there was a Forbes article – um, that was published that I I linked to and I was kind of astonished at how much traction it got. I thought it just had a funny little line in it when it talked about referring to Adam Cole as an artisanal cheese shop. And essentially, what I've I've said for a while, which is the WWE Network is a niche product as an OTT service, and it's not you know meant for general. It's not the Netflix of wrestling. It's the netflix of nfl films you know it's a very specific thing for a very specific genre of people and so one of the things they were complaining about in this this article was about you know are these work shoot promos actually turning people off because they don't want to see this insider jabs at each other and that doesn't connect as well as you know braun strowman ripping the door off an ambulance it's
0: just stuff that's over their head
1: yeah and and it's funny just you know some of the pieces that have come out about you know this that it, it doesn't sometimes seem to take it as if these people are being to be taked at face value and that we're supposed to believe that these are real promos where people are saying
0: it to each other as if they were not practiced behind the scenes but my, my opinion and my sort of philosophy on wrestling is that um and this doesn't necessarily work for everybody but i think we should as much as possible in interviews, at least this is what I want to see and what I think works well for me personally, when I do interviews and stuff is I want to hear somebody say as as stuff that's as close to the truth as possible without, you know, whatever breaking the, the fourth wall and, you know, starting to say things that, you know, would naturally lead you to deduce that wrestling is all at work because what we, what we do in the ring obviously has to be safe. So we can't shoot on each other in the ring and that wouldn't make for an exciting match anyway. But the things that we say, there's no reason why those can't be as real as they can, as we can make them as long as they are s- still dramatic and things that are contributing to selling the show and making it more exciting.
1: So uh, let's get into it, um, specifically this Roman and this, this Vince McMahon claims. So can you walk us through what exactly were the Roman uh, uh,
0: words that we're going to kind of look into right now? Sh- shall we just quote him here? Uh, this is on the September 11th episode of Raw. Uh, Reigns and Cena are standing in the ring for the third or fourth time. They're having this face-to-face, uh, you know, Monday Night Raw promo duel. And he, he said that you, he's referring to, to Cena, uh, came to Monday Night Raw and you called me out. And I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because I'm selling the tickets that you haven't sold in five years. You say I'm not doing my job. Ticket sales are great. Revenue is sky high. WWE can make it without you. That's why you don't like me. WWE doesn't need you, John. You need WWE. So from that there are four factual claims that I see. Number one is I'm selling tickets that you aren't, that you haven't sold in five years. Uh, Number two is ticket sales are great. Number three is revenue is sky high. And number four is W can make it without John Cena. And getting back to kind of
1: the, is it the character talking? Is it the person talking? Is it the writer talking? I think it's really hard sometimes to know when to take a wrestler At face value, because even if you go to Kevin Nash and you say, how was your time as WWF champion, he'll tell you business was great and he was paid well Mm -hmm. and things were good. And Mm -hmm. anyone who says otherwise doesn't understand the true things that were happening in the business. And then he'll point to, you know, he went out to WCW business, got great there. Therefore, I was re- involved in that. And and that's the thing is in a, in a nature of a business that is built on independent contractorship and at best tag team contractorship, right? That maybe you and somebody else are, are glued together. That for the most part, you're the piece that feels like you're coming and going in these industries. And while I don't believe that there's aspirations that he, Heath Slater believes, you know, that the room is filled or not filled tonight because he's there. All you have to go on is what you're doing in the time and the fact that you're an individual member of the team. So I can understand a lot of guys in their heart of hearts do probably believe that the people on top are the ones that are driving business. And it's tough when you're a entertainer to always know what is good and what is bad. Right. Like when I do an improv show, if I do it in a room that seats 30 and we have 25 there. It feels good, right? Because it feels like a full room. And if I do it in a room that seats 200 and I have 100 there, it doesn't feel so good because it feels half empty. But quantitatively, one is larger than the other, though you know, there's other costs that could be worked in. So I, what I'm trying to get at here is that I think there's always a measure of truth here that guys are just – they have to be a little full of themselves to be on top. And they have to be a little bit um, – they have to believe that what's happening they're having some influence on. And the studies you and I have done over and over and over again suggest very little of the roster has an influence on what's happening on a week-to-week basis. So so you think Reigns believes this to some extent? I believe that if you're a top guy, you always have to believe that you're having some control over the business that's happening at that moment Mm -hmm. because otherwise you're very much left with the idea to say, well, why does it have to be me? Because honestly, if you're not having any influence, why are you the guy that's on top? Because either someone else is going to be better, or you're completely replaceable, and both of those options as an
0: independent contractor are probably anathema. So should we should we go through one of the, through each of these one by one and yes. test them it's, to yes. scrutiny and yes, this is this is Busters here, like Mythbusters right, this for a, uh, this probably be, this episode is
1: probably going to be titled fact checking or something like that so yeah, or a brandon ruins everything kind of like that adam ruins everything
0: show gotcha media ruins everything
1: so the first claim is i'm selling the tickets that you cena haven't
0: sold in 5 years right and so that's the one that is kind of hard to to research but we can research it enough to see that it's quite clearly false if we look at so what what i think is the fairest way to go about figuring this out is to I'm going to try to make this as uh, as uh, exciting as possible in audio form, is to go through house show attendances, which really the only source we have for individual attendances. The Wrestling Observer Newsletter, uh, although corporate.w.com gives us through SEC filings and KPIs a number of average attendances and some total attendances. They don't give us individual attendances for individual events, but the, the observer reports these attendance estimates, which are probably from people who were at the show personally and wrote to, to Dave or to the observer and gave them an attendance estimate, which we, we've you know compared to W's actual reporting and we've gotten total attendances comparing observer numbers to WE numbers that are that are pretty close.
1: Pretty close. I, I think sometimes they're a little lower. Sometimes they're a little higher. It's always going to be the artifact of, you know, can someone really judge whether there's 7,200 people at a show, right. 7,500 people, or more likely, just to even put the numbers in context, your average house show is drawing
0: maybe 5,000 with, you know, your small house shows getting down yeah. to the I, 2,000s. I, I, as and as you're a matter big matter the fact, there was a, a house show in Buffalo not, long, not that long ago, and I didn't go to it, but a, a few of my friends did who, like... Like separate groups of friends who weren't sitting together and I texted I think th- like three of them and asked them you know, how the show was and I asked each of them what the attendance was. And they gave me like a wide range of attendance estimates like one said 3,000, one said 6,000, one said 8,000, something like that. It was a, a wide range of uh, of responses. Yeah, and I think that's the challenge is that
1: we as people are not usually trained on this. So it's it's tough for us. Two, you you look at the size of the place, and then you kind of take a percentage, and then you take a percentage of whatever you think the seating is. And the seating for a hockey game is not always the same. The seating for a wrestling event. So sometimes people are using kind of different baseline numbers. And then three, I would say within ten percent, you're always going to be just estimating, right? Um, maybe you can tell the difference between a crowd that's a 1,000 and a crowd that's 1,500 because you can count the rows of chairs and then you can start multiplying. But I find after you get after about a 1,000 or 2,000, it's just – guesswork at that point and there's obviously other factors you can use there's some indications that sometimes dave does try to talk to the buildings when he has a relationship there's sometimes an indication that maybe he's even getting some kind of general numbers from uh wrestlers that are going on these tours because they do get some reporting of some sort i believe in their paychecks to say you know this was Uh, this room was x percent filled or or this was a good house or this was not a good house so i think there's a little bit of that too and and i imagine some of the wrestlers and some of the staff who are doing this week after week
0: after week they're much better at judging just the way you can train yourself to almost anything sure so as we said we're still on number one so does the question is does is is john cena a better house show draw or at least he's saying attendance draw and or or is roman reigns a better attendance draw as he claims to be at least on w raw um So I think the fairest way to look at this is to look at, first of all, we need to look at not just all attendances, but North American attendances, North American house show attendances, because that's the one section, that's the the one event type that is going to give us the clearest idea of whether or not any of these particular wrestlers matter to attendance. Because in the case of TV tapings like Raw and SmackDown, I think those have a disproportionate draw because they're on TV. Pay-per-views obviously even more so. So you're saying we're going to look at North American house shows? Yes. Okay. So then what I did was I collected a bunch of North American house show attendance and uh, we know what the cards are for each one. So we know whether or not John Cena was on it. We know whether or not Roman Reigns was on it. So what I want to do is take the events. I want to do a market to market study where we take the events that John Cena was at, but Roman Reigns wasn't at. In a given market, and then in that same market, look at the attendance for when Roman Reigns was there, but John Cena wasn't there. So in other words, a situation where, where both of them are on the event, which is actually kind of rare. We just, we're just we not going to consider that, obviously, because they're, they're both And there.
1: for seasonality, a lot of times we see them kind of going to the same places either once or twice a year, but oftentimes in the same season of the year, right?
0: I haven't really looked at that. Do you notice that?
1: Well, you know, I think— a lot of cities will say, "Yeah, you know, we historically have an event on blank date. Hmm. So, for instance, like Rochester for years and years would get the Thanksgiving Smackdown hmm. or would get the Thanksgiving taping or sometimes maybe in Buffalo. But they would usually end kind of that loop going through New York. And so you do see a lot of that. I have seen a lot of times where it does seem like they do very similar loops. There's obviously exceptions. Like I think they were just recently in Rochester, Minnesota, but they didn't come to the Twin Cities. Hmm. Well, if you're going to go to Rochester, it's only an hour and a half to get to the Twin Cities. So I could see on one year the loop you go to Rochester and one year the loop you come to the Twin Cities. So there's some variation there. But in general, I, I would say a lot of these cities are being visited in the same month of the year. And so if you're not talking about New York City or something like that, like Madison Square Garden or the Allstate Arena, for the most part, a lot of these towns are actually going to also be either the same month of the year or the same one or two times of the year that
0: they come. Okay. And the reason why I think we should look at this market to market is because if you just look compare say let's just look at Cena's average attendance versus Roman Reigns' average attendance uh, the, the problem with that the obvious criticism of that is that you know well maybe John Cena's in big markets more often than Roman Reigns and Certainly like in two thousand fifteen when they were really working discrete tours, where so there was like a Cena tour and a Reigns tour, that was the case where Cena was in the A markets, let's say, and, and Reigns was in the B markets. So that's why it wouldn't be fair to just let's compare their averages because Cena has probably had a, a greater opportunity to be in front of bigger markets and, and bigger venues. So I think it's fair to just let's look at each city and compare their, their performances when they were in the city and the other guy wasn't. And so what we find, uh we can look at it on a number of time frames. One of the time frames that I'm choosing to look at it uh, by is let's look at all of Cena's data from 2012 because that's the co- from 2012 to July 2017 because that's the comment that Reigns may said in the last five years. So five years from today is about 2012. So let's look at Cena's data in the last five years and let's compare it to Roman Reigns' data just since 2015 um, because I don't want to look at before 2015 for Roman Reigns because I don't think that's fair because he's not a top single star yet. By 2015, by the beginning of the year, January 2015 when he wins the Royal Rumble, then he's I think a definitive top star. So I think it's fair to consider his data in that portion of time. So anyway, what we get out of that are 28 comparable markets, okay, where we can really compare a John Cena attendance to a Roman Reigns attendance. And the result that I find is 22 out of those 28. John Cena wins. You know, John Cena drew a, a, a bigger crowd.
1: So if I'm going through the list here and I'm saying these are the Cena win cities, I'd say Montgomery, Bangor, Rockford, Milwaukee, Jackson, Mobile, Fort Myers, Buffalo, Providence, Rochester, Springfield, Wheeling, Montreal, Knoxville, Jacksonville, uh, Raleigh, uh, Lowell, uh, Charlotte, Hildago, Piro- Peoria, Sacramento, Syracuse, those are the Cena dominated markets, right? And then you you, you just went through them in uh, kind of greatest to least exactly. in terms of, of edge. So if, if you're in Montgomery, Alabama, Cena kills it, whereas if you're in Syracuse,
0: New York, it's almost a tie. Right. Um, and, and, and as we go through the cities here, too, another limit of this study is that we because we're just getting attendances from the Observer – the observer reports attendances for W events. W events for most events, but there's some where we just never get an attendance. It's it's a minority, but but it has that limitation. Sure, sure. And so if I go through then what the rains winning
1: cities are, and I'm I'm doing this out loud partially just to see if there's any geographies that jump out okay. when I start, you know, kind of going through it. Yeah. Where I'd say Huntington, um, Amarillo, White Plains, Charleston, uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then Ontario, which I think in this case California. is Ontario, California, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, you definitely see that that kind of Georgia championship wrestling circuit doing quite well. You see the, you know, uh, uh, some of the other older circuits doing well. Hildago is one of those cities that, you know, um, historically really outdraws uh, based on the size of the market. And that's something that people we've always heard a lot about. But, you know, it's it's when you get to upstate New York, you know, you got Buffalo, Rochester and Syracuse, three cities that are right in a row from each other. And you have three very different stories going on there. They're all cena markets, but they ranges from anywhere from you know a, a 40% advantage to almost no advantage at all. So you can't even say it's just one state or one area. Um, and some of this, of course, is probably going to have to do a little bit with uh, the time of the year and the competition that's happening against the house show.
0: But right. you, you've pointed out from January to March that that is an, a, a, a factor that will improve attendance if you run a show in january to march versus any other time in the year the attendance is usually higher exactly and the same from december
1: 26 to january 1st yeah definitely uh, you know it's the difference of whether you're in the first of december or the end the end of december yeah. but in general you know i think you have a conclusive story here that's saying i'm not being able to cherry pick one story or two stories i found 20 stories out of 30 markets and so is it yeah yeah. Is, is it conclusive? I don't know whether I can go and, and get a, a doctorate in this, but I think I can um, make a pretty strong claim that uh, someone would be hard pressed to disprove the fact that in general, Cena has outdrawn uh, reigns. And then do you have kind of a boiled down number to say what it would look like if you're just to say all those cities put together versus the other cities, what the uh, percentages are? We you average the, the difference there? Sure, if you were yeah. to say uh, average of, of Reigns-dominated cities and the average of Cena-dominated cities and the delta that they have of
0: which wrestler was in them, so kind of, so kind of a two-by-two. Two. Cena's record beats Reigns' record 22 out of 28 markets. On average, Cena made a 29% positive difference over Reigns' attendances in those markets. In in all 28 markets? Yes, all
1: 28. So it's even
0: stronger in those first 22. So you want to know the average of— just the cities where cena wins is uh sure. a, a positive 41%. Okay, so yeah, more than a third is is,
1: you know, what we say in business speak when we're boiling it down for the executives. Uh, <laughs> so that's great. You know, that that says a lot. So that's that's a pretty interesting thing and I know you looked at a
0: lot of other markets and comparisons and things. Did yeah. you want to call out any of those? So, so just real quick, I think one question you could raise against what we just said is that we're looking at John Cena's numbers from 2012 to, to July 2017. And, and if you're a big Roman Reigns advocate in this case, you might say, well, well, maybe actually John Cena's drawing power as, as an attendance draw has worn off as the years have gone on. So let's look at the same time frame for both of them, for 2015 to basically the present for John Cena and 2015 to the present or July 2017 for Roman Reigns as well. And it's going to be a
1: little tougher because Cena starts taking more sabbaticals in these last right. two years, right? So we have less, so there's less,
0: less, less data here. Yeah. We have a lot fewer yeah. samples here. We've only got 12 now instead of what we had 28 before. So we've got 12 samples, but in nine out of those 12, John Cena wins.
1: And again, the cities that he's losing in White Plains, Syracuse and Ontario, California. Um, Syracuse was kind of that bridge city before. And I believe both White Plains and Ontario were good cities for Roman Reigns in the original example. Right.
0: And and, uh, we we can continue and where things get worse for for Roman Reigns, because if we take there there are actually a lot of house shows that don't feature either Roman Reigns or John Cena. And we could do a market. I did do a market to market study uh, looking at, well, how does Roman Reigns compare to the house shows that don't have either Reigns or Cena? So those.
1: So that would be like a Smackdown house show when John Cena was on sabbatical.
0: Yeah and there in there's even uh so I'm lo- I'm going to look at 2015 to the present and there's shows with like Bray Wyatt yeah, like the Big Show Kane tour is what I used to call it yeah. because I would often find those guys. They would put a giant of some sort in yeah. on there. Yeah, it sounds like we're tearing it down, like it's some terrible show, uh, which is unfortunate for, for the comparison I'm about to make. Which is so out of those, if we just compare from 2015, which again is the, is the time that I I judge Roman Reigns to be a, you know a top star, top single star for WWE, 2015 to July 2017, uh, take his house show numbers versus. House show numbers where neither Reigns or Cena were and and compare them in the same market, see who had the better attendance. The result is we got 67 samples and it's about 50-50. It's 36 out of the 67, the neither shows the Roman Reigns shows that's
1: and that's an interesting finding I mean you, you could argue that there are stars on that other show you know AJ Styles sure. or someone might have been wrestling there and and bringing people out or Kevin Owens you know there's a famously a Kevin Owens Sami Zayn show in Montreal that did incredible numbers
0: yeah um, but I think so, the presumption that a fan would take to to this topic is that okay or at least the story that WWE is telling, it it presumes that, okay, Cena and Reigns are the top two guys and Reigns is the the new guy and who's really the bigger star. Yeah,
1: and and what this really also surprises me is that um, these neither shows, I would have to check my list, um, but it would presumably include some of those Monday house shows where SmackDown is running against Raw. And if you look at the the numbers on that, those shows are often one-third smaller than your average SmackDown house show. Um, there's a there 's a discernible drop in attendance that week, but it 's a valuable conquest because you know if you 're going to work sunday and you 're going to work Tuesday, working Monday in a smaller city still earns you a profit and they 're still above break even but that it 's funny in this little example here that we 're even including some of those what i 'd call really small markets are really uh, difficult to draw in markets, and we 're still seeing a fifty fifty result, which says to me you know you 're not really um, the factors that you might be using to make your comparison against are not really telling a story, right? So that's as if it's, if I were to say, okay, let's look at all the shows that Rhino appeared on or all the shows The New Day's on or someone like that. I bet you I would come up with a very similar result because now I'm not necessarily saying Reigns is, is necessarily a draw the way Cena is, but instead I'm just choosing a random variable and about half the time
0: it does better and half the time it does worse. Yeah, The story I get out of this is that Reigns is – he's not a negative draw, but he's just not a significant draw. And honestly, I have for, – for almost a decade here, I and, have and I should specify sliced and diced a, the a numbers, and that's draw. what I
1: find. Yeah. Yeah, it's, is that when you go and try to find who correlates or has a high R-squared value or whatever you want to say, even if you don't want to say there's a causation but at least a correlation between a, a house going up or down and their presence on that card – Cena pops out of that analysis really well. Then the next people that pop out of that analysis are usually people that were only on really weird shows, as in like stars that were with the company for a very, very short period of time. You know, you'll find like your Kizarni or something will do great because the one week he was on tour or Palmer Cannon or something because that was a good tour week for them, and then they're not being compared against the rest of the year. Right. You know, obviously people like Undertaker and Brock Lesnar have also done well, but
0: again, they don't do a lot of house shows, so it's usually a big, big, big deal if they are. And I've noticed just when I've when I've done research is that Cena kind of casts a shadow in that over the last several years when he's been. A noticeable house show draw so that t- to try to look at anybody else but cena you're going to have sort of a cena effect in that everybody else is going to be benefited to the extent that they were on shows with him so if, if i'm somebody yes. who's just always on the cena tour i'm going to look like a great draw as well in the in the supermarket industry we'd call it the halo
1: effect okay. you know it's it's the idea that one thing then has a positive effect on something else that's surrounding it um, but yeah, it's it's exactly that. And so, yeah, you you can go way back in the day and say when The Rock was on shows, did they draw better? Yes, they did. Did Steve Austin on shows draw better? Usually they did. And you can find those. But the reality is they've run so many more shows now than they did in the Attitude Era, which is something a lot of people don't realize. Yeah. And um, that a you can k- take that away and then B. The only other period that you have like really great, you know, let's compare this to that house show type stuff is going back to the 80s and really digging and digging and digging. And I remember when I did that, of course, Hulk Hogan came out as as having an influence. And then, like I say, the other ones were really weird ones like Rock and Robin. I remember doing really well. And again, it was because they didn't bring Rock and Robin on tour all that much, and so she she tended to be going to kind of these bigger cities and being this peripheral act when they decided that they wanted to do that one certain event that she happened to be part of. So um, I I agree with you very much that you know I think Cena is the only one that stood out. And when I've done R Squareds before, by between you know with Cena on the show and not, and sometimes I'll make giant matrices of this where I'll take lots and lots of people, like the top twenty people. And do the analysis. And very rarely does anyone else seem to be having a really strong effect on it. And so far, seen as the only guy that was popping to me in doing that. I, I know what you and I just did here on this mark-to-market kind of comparison is not exactly the same as doing kind of a statistical analysis where you're you know looking at chi-squares and p-values and whatnot. But um, I think in some ways it's much easier to explain and much easier to
0: comprehend just to say, let's take the same city and look at the attendance. Yeah, no, I'm not a trained – Statistician, I am, but I am a, a Russell matrician or, or so you have called me.
1: We can beat this to death. But what I would love to ask you is, A, is this going into an article or something that people are going to be able to decipher from for themselves in the future here? Obviously, if you're a patron supporter at uh, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash WrestleNomics, you can sign up. You can see this document. You can see every one of these graphs that we're talking about right now as soon as, as this episode is published. But uh, if if you are a, uh, a lazy or a cheap person, uh, the way most wrestling fans are, uh, will there be an article
0: be uh, available on this? Most likely. Ho- hopefully I'll be writing something for Fightful about this. It's in the works.
1: So I think we, we've we made a pretty strong argument on the first one. So he said, I'm selling tickets that you, Sina, haven't sold in five years uh, without demographic information, which would be the only other thing that we don't know about. You know, the argument that, hey, he's bringing in kids and Cena stopped bringing in kids or something of that nature.
0: I see. Right? I see. So that, but, but then there he, must I'm have sure be some other demographic that suffered, you know, offsettingly.
1: You know, uh, uh, vocal women and children love Roman Reigns and uh, uh, sweaty neck do not. So Sorry. who knows? I, I have no idea what the, the demographics are, but I mean, there's other what my point is you can cut it different ways. You know, I could say I'm number one among Puerto Ricans named Steve and. Yeah, that might be true, but that doesn't mean necessarily there's more Puerto Ricans named Steve than some other demographic group you might choose. Yeah. So, and if you are a Puerto Rican named Steve, uh, you get free access to the WrestleNomics document this this week. So uh, feel free to send me a, a DM at, at Mookie Ghana on Twitter for Steve's, that access. All Steve's, no matter the All spot. Puerto Ricans named oh, Steve. Okay. Puerto Ricans
0: named Steve, okay.
1: Um, yeah. so,
0: number two claim, ticket sales are great. Ticket sales are great. So there's a number of ways we can... Uh, slice this to look at it in terms of average attendance and again we're just gonna look at North American attendance because that's more stable and more regular in terms of the markets that they run as opposed to the international attendances where they may, may or may not run a set of markets in a given year so the attendance may be more volatile so anyway again we're looking at North American live attendance averages and I've got them from the year 2012 up to the present so in 2012 5900 in 2013 6,000. 2014, it's 6,000. 2015, it's 6,000. 2016, it's down 200 to 5,800. And so far in the first half of 2017, the average is 6,100.
1: So not much change there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is North America includes both TV tapings
0: and house That's everything. And this is the number, not something that we calculated from the observer. This is something that's actually from corporate.w.com. But does not include NXT
1: events. Right. So this is is only main roster stuff. So this would be all the SmackDown and the Raw shows basically. And the house house shows and pay-per-views and
0: TV. Even WrestleMania is calculated in here.
1: Mm -hmm. So uh, the first kind of takeaway just for people that haven't looked at North American attendance uh, for years and years and years. I'll just say uh this is a very low level of variation i guess you know dropping from 6000 to 5800 might you raise an eyebrow or two but you also have to keep in mind some of the changes that have gone on with revenue and ticket prices which i think we'll get into in a moment um but in general this is stable is what i would call this is that unlike years before where you would see it going from 6000 to you know a much lower number or you know at the the during the attitude era where it shot up to close to 12000 a show and then right after that plummeted Uh, We're not seeing that kind of um, Enormous variation going on And in fact, and this is kind of in your next Graph, which I thought was great to kind of call out Is the number of shows run each Year has kind of varied, so they've Gone from 314 in 2012, 321 318, then they jumped up to 329, and then in 2016 That year where we saw the attendance drop They actually ran 344 shows So they were already running 10% More shows than they were running in 2012 Back in that year and then by um, the first half of this year they'd already run 187 shows and i should point out that this number of live events that i'm quoting right now that is a all in number that includes
0: international and north america correct yes it does so it, yeah. so the point is like for this year for 2017 it looks like they're on track to do uh, substantially more shows than they did last year what what's what's double 187
1: Yeah. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Right. Because a year ago they started the brand split. Right. And they didn't have a full year of the brand split. And this year you'll have a full year of the brand split. And that includes things like Monday night house shows that they weren't doing. And it also includes them, you know, squeezing a little bit more on the edges because you have when you run international tours, for instance, you can sometimes get away a little bit more because, for instance, uh, Smackdown guys can stay on the tour one more day when you're international as well. And especially for those, those are going to be really lucrative extra
0: days to add on. Mm-hmm. So uh, total attendance is uh, pr- probably by the end of this year going to be up a little bit. Maybe it'll be at 2.2. 2. So I don't know. Average attendance is, is about flat, but then total attendance is about flat. But the number of events is way up and revenue is, is has been up in the last several years more often than not, or it's it's a, been flat between 2013 and 2014. but other than that, you know, in 2012 it was 104 million, in 2013 it was 112 million, 2014 In 2015 125 million, 2016 144 million, and in the first half of this year 82 million. Um so revenues up, but revenues yeah, up so- because there are more events and there's higher ticket prices. Yeah, and we definitely see the influence of ticket
1: prices there, right? So we had originally said house show attendance was pretty flat for those first four years. And into that fifth year we actually saw that house show attendance dropping domestically and total attendance went from about 1.9 million to 2.1 million with the addition of some events but revenues jumped from you know the 110 million range to the 140 million range so they squeezed out 30 million dollars despite losing a little bit of north american attendance and keeping their attendance somewhat similar between 2015 and 2016 they made an incremental almost 20 million dollars just on attendance so obviously that massive wrestlemania was one of the big engines to that um because that really did prop up the number and and again to this year i would even challenge when you say i think 1.1 million for the first half is going to become 2.2 for the second half Mm -hmm. i I think wrestlemania might might weigh a little too heavy in the first half so i would think it's probably going to be closer to 2.1 unless we see a renaissance in attendance and that is not something we're seeing as of this month today uh, I think it was going a little bit better in the summer and then it's kinda cooled down a little bit from what I'm I've been reading in terms of attendance trends. But and just as an from aside, a revenue- we
0: heard about the Las Vegas SmackDown show that included the Mayon Classic final and attendance was pretty weak and there's something something around four thousand. Yeah, which is which is a bad number. I mean normally
1: when you switch your house shows, you kind of say my average house show is somewhere between forty-five hundred and five thousand, and then you can add anywhere from two thousand to three thousand if it's a TV taping. It's
0: SmackDown kind of is bad. maybe between five and seven thousand, and Raw is, is around as around eight to ten thousand.
1: Yeah, so you you can usually add several thousand to that number. So four thousand would be considered a okay to so-so house show number,
0: and, and it it's may considered depend on the market. TV and number. I would think. I don't know this for a fact without looking it up, but I think the markets that they run SmackDown in are usually a little bit smaller than the markets that they run Raw in. Um, But but here we have Las Vegas. My point is here we have Las Vegas, which is a pretty big
1: market. Yeah, so the point of all this stuff about the revenue and the attendance is attendance for the most part has been flat. They have excreted, not not excreted, they have extracted, that's the word I want, extracted um, additional money per person in uh from everybody in ticket prices and so they've done a better job of leveraging their their most ardent fans to get
0: more and more that would be a good headline though, from- for the next uh, next time we have to write an article about wb's quarterly uh, reports Vince McMahon excretes more revenue from wb fans maybe something like that <laughs> i'll have to write that down
1: um, but we, we definitely see that they're getting more money per head. They're running more and more events, um, which is part of their strategy. I mean, what's fascinating to me is to look at the mix between, uh, domestic and international attendance. You know, we, we've gone from about 400,000 people in international attendance to maybe 480,000 people in international attendance. And meanwhile, um, domestic attendance has gone anywhere from a little under 1.5 million all the way to above 1.6 million. So much like the split of the WWE Network, it is still – what is that? 75% uh, domestic uh, uh, yeah. Attendance. And so, as much as WWE portrays itself as a global superstar, and certainly from a television rights standpoint, some of the money they get, which is really important to their lifeblood, does come from global TV markets. The majority is still coming from domestic television, domestic house shows, domestic WWE network subscribers. They are domestic driven business. And that's one of the reasons why all the talk about India and China to me can sometimes seem like lofty goals for a company that really does have to worry about whether Fargo,
0: North Dakota is drawing or not. Maybe a part of their vision is to you know, have brands set up around the world someday, where maybe there's this WUK brand, for example, evolves into something that actually has brick and mortar in, in England somewhere, and uh, maybe similar things for other countries or other continents. I would love to say yes.
1: But I mean, I
0: read not, ten not years ago. Not soon, but
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I just mean I read Shane McMahon's dream ten years ago exactly before, and it, that was what it was. I read you know everything that everyone thought was going to happen in WWE UK. And we thought maybe that was going to happen, and now we're almost seeing it more like it's a defensive play, right? It's a lock yeah. everybody up and just put them in a holding pattern, and it's costing us so little that we're not being penalized for not doing anything right now about this, which is not an unusual business strategy. Lots of businesses lock things up and don't know what to do with them. But um I I strongly feel like until Vince McMahon is no longer at the helm or Vince McMahon has abdicated some of his control to a number two like a Triple H, we're not going to see a worldwide market um, strategy of that kind just because he just doesn't seem to be comfortable with the kind of uh, autonomy
0: that that would require in my opinion. I feel like he has delegated quite a bit to Paul Levesque already. I think yeah, that but, I think but, that WUK tournament I think Vince had very little to do with and everything in NXT obviously, May Young Classic, all that stuff.
1: Oh, I know. I I don't disagree with that. I I get back to look at the way they've structured corporate year after year. You know, they used to have a somewhat independent international division. And when Garrett Myers left, they they kind of gutted that. And they changed the entire um, lines of, of communication, and now they're mainly going up through Barrios. And the guy that they have in charge of all that, Ed Wells, a uh, longtime employee, a uh, good company man, but not necessarily someone that seems like he is in his own being given that kind of bilateral uh, uh, creative initiative. Instead, it, it seems to me much more like it, we're still seeing the same lines of communication. So absolutely possible. If you had asked me six months ago, I would have been a lot more um, bullish on the idea of that kind of uh, international autonomy and and things but now i'm just i I just feel like it's a short leash so triple h gets his short leash where he can run his uk championship but the idea of the uk territory a there's only so many hours in the day and b uh i just don't see him appointing these advisors to make it happen on without him being that the, the lead so what changed in the
0: last six months
1: the fact that they just didn't pull the trigger on any of that UK stuff okay. uh, just said a lot to me. And the fact that they, you know, they get asked about it on every conference call, and they kind of now hem and haw. Uh, it just to me, it it seemed like something where like that was their chance to 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 demonstrate to me. Yeah, we're going all in and on international. If you were to ask me, what's the most important international thing they've done in the last couple years here? Well, not the most, but one of the most, I would say it was probably the localization that they're doing in Mexico and India around creating uh, programs for their television partners that is better communicating with the local markets. And, you know, that's not a sexy answer, like set up a UK territory, but it's it might be in some ways a more realistic answer about what are they doing to actually signal to the marketplace about how they're going to have actual growth in the future versus kind of lofty goals that aren't really well thought out.
0: It's a far worse content to have to write about how w is doing a, a spanish language version of one of their programs as opposed to they're they're building a new training center in some you know some far off country hey and and you know they've done great
1: things i think you know like we talked about going to dubai and and holding a middle east tryout and finding some talent there and uh, for better or for worse no one wants to talk about kavita devi but uh, the Indian press was all over her, and she got a ton of attention, and it sounds like she signed. So yep. they found someone, and they got them some social media metrics. And if that's going to be one of the KPIs that they want to show every time on their investor slide, and all it takes is hiring one woman from India to make that number pop for a quarter, hey, that's a small investment to make.
0: Yeah, Maybe we'll see Google Trends at the next uh, business partner summit. You know Howard Metrics right. uh, Incorporated should
1: put together an offer to uh, WWE that they can uh, come up with all sorts of interesting new social media metrics that they have not yet looked at to show how they're dominating and and crushing their enemies.
0: Sure. So we're I, th- I think we're through number two. Then we're on to number what's number three? Well, well,
1: let's let's just say so ticket sales
0: are great. Yeah. Um, what do we give that? So the
1: first one I I would say we we gave a not so plausible answer to for Rome. Roman's claim that yeah. that scene itself hasn't really sold those tickets. Yeah, the second I, I one give that a definitive, a, no,
0: he's not. And <laughs> ticket sales are great. Yeah. Thumbs up, thumbs down, I, thumbs in the middle. Thumbs in the middle. I, I think, you know, year over year, ticket revenues up. Total attendance is you know, maybe a little bit up. Average attendance is pretty much flat. Um, ticket prices are up. I mean, maybe you could say Reigns deserves some credit for the ticket prices being able to go up. I, I don't know, though. It, Take If Roman Reigns never decided to become a professional wrestler, though, is the live events revenue segment any different? Probably not, in my opinion. I will give
1: this one a, a plausible but not provable claim. Ticket sales are great. Um, they're good sure. and they're they're better i'd say they're probably I, better this I year they we were last
0: year i think he deserves credit for for filling the role to the extent that he does i'm not yeah. i'm not terribly convinced that someone else can do a comparable job as he's done but he's done the job that he has done which which isn't a terrible job it's a it, there are problems with it but in many ways it's a satisfactory job
1: <laughs> what a compliment yeah it's not giving a black eye to the company right now yeah. so i i think it's i think it's a as Provable or unprovable, any of these are. Ticket sales are great. Yes, they are okay, though some of the live event attendance metrics that we're hearing today are disturbing and alarming. And just like the um, uh, Mayweather-McGregor fight proved, it's hard when you think that you can continually squeeze revenue from your consumers. At a certain point, you can overestimate what you're going to get from them. And we saw that with that fight where there was a lot of seats that went unsold worth a lot of money. And in some ways, they overestimated what the demand on the marketplace was going to be. And with WWE continually raising the prices here, like we see kind of year over year over year, I wonder if they might have hit that same sort of inflection point themselves. Especially with trying to run more and more events, well, they haven't hit it I yet
0: get, because re, live event revenue is up year over year, and I, I,
1: I. it is. But but I'm saying when you when live event revenue is high, but attendance is falling, just like we talked about. You know, having a really bad SmackDown. I don't want to go on a one week trend, but yeah. you know, right now I'm trying to get tickets for the TLC pay per view in Minneapolis. All right. and. It is a challenge. It's a raw branded show. Let's see, Mr. Roman Reigns. Maybe I should send Roman a note, just saying, I know ticket sales are great. Uh, it's time for you to uh, prove to me. We can have this discussion in your locker room afterwards. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm trying to get tickets, and the problem is that while there are tickets available, they are super expensive right now. Oh. And How much are they compared to? Um, I'd say the cheapest tickets I can find is in the upper deck, and that's fifty plus. Um, upper upper deck. I'm talking. You know, like pretty. It is for a pay per view, but I got floor tickets to bragging rights back in whatever year that was, maybe 2011, 2012, something like that. And that was probably maybe only twice that amount. You know, I was paying maybe a hundred bucks, maybe 120 to sit on the floor in really good seats. And here I'm getting really awful seats for 50, and it's like 300 to 500 if you want to go on the floor. So. Yeah, some of this is just coming from you know I'm looking at all the different marketplaces and trying to figure it out. I, I just would say right now I, this I might be a to, case.
0: I went to W Fast Lane, which was a pay per view in Cleveland in 2016, and that all fees included 40 dollars uh, and forty five cents. It was a twenty five dollar ticket.
1: It's a, so what I'm what I'm just wondering is if maybe we're at a point here where you're going to see buildings that are three quarters filled, and the three quarters that are there are generating some good revenue. But the problem is the reason they're three-quarters filled is that the the remainder of the tickets are not being priced in the range that people are willing to pay for what they're getting. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just going to be curious. That's going to be a trend. Again, that's a very um, – uh, that's a trend based on my observation in my marketplace and my feelings. That's a gut. That's not the way I try to do my nomics. Is just gut feelings. I try to do them off the cuff with absolutely no research or knowledge whatsoever. Uh, hence my Twitch discussions. But uh, it, it does concern me a little bit that maybe we're hitting that inflection point where we've raised the prices more than the market is going to bear for the fans that are not hardcore. And the problem is that a larger proportion of their fans are, are not
0: hardcore than they might be estimating at this time. So revenue is sky high what was his next point. So I think what what he's saying there is pretty clear, right? He's saying that WWE's overall revenue is is increasing you know, over time, um, and we can look at that pretty easily just by looking at any, you know, almost any number of W's SEC filings, where we can look at revenue and how it's uh, evolved over time. And W's revenue uh, has increased more often than not since even back going going back to 2003. It's increased every year, although there's some years where it really increases only a couple million, but it has increased every year since then but a lot, it's really increased uh, since 2015 though, which is when the network really started to get up and running and they started to get their new TV rights contract uh, fees, uh, those started to get paid. So the big difference between when they had the network and when they had pay per view was that, you know, they would split the revenue with the pay per view provider. And once they decided to go with the network and to almost completely cannibalize pay per view, they took all of that revenue in house. And took the cost on in-house as well, obviously. So the profit, as it stands right now, the profit uh, of pay-per-view and of the network is similar. Uh, Of course, when you take out the home entertainment and iPay-per-views, I know it's, it's, yeah, it's even more. But it's it's relatively similar, but the revenue is way higher because it's
1: direct-to-consumer. Profit dollars are very similar. Profit percentage is only half what it was. Um, you know, on, on, in the, in the old days, if if I get, if I won a hundred bucks on pay-per-view, I would be taking home 45 or so. Now when I get a hundred bucks from network, you know, 10 months of subscription, I take home maybe 20 or less than that. It could even be 10. I got, I got, I can't remember whether it's a quarter or whether it's only 15% right now, um, without looking at the numbers. So on a, in a per dollar, basis it is much lower the difference is uh, I I am getting a 1.5 million people a month who are buying this thing versus once a year getting you know 800,000 to a million people buying it and then rest of the months of the year getting maybe a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand people buying it so it's it's a volume thing very much they've turned themselves into a volume game and of the people they have in their volume there they're definitely making the per penny profit is less but the absolute dollar profit is better. Mm-hmm. So that that's interesting to me. I I think, you know, they made a change to their business model. If you look at their revenue between 2009 and 2000 almost 13, it's nearly flat in terms of revenue growth. They were in a stagnation cycle. They were changing out some of their markets dynamics because of course during this time we saw things like home entertainment kind of rise and fall we saw uh, obviously the digital space completely transform we saw different things going on with their tv rights in different countries and of course their pay-per-views and and the frequency of, of when they promoted events and the price changes they made to those events uh, you know we saw a lot of of increases in the uh price in pay-per-view over over the years from like 2006 to 2011 but what's interesting to me is that they definitely changed their model when they went to this uh, WWE Network model. And I think it's always an illusion where people think that what you got is what you had to get in terms of, I think they've got money from their network, but I think they could have gotten a lot more money from their network if they had priced it a little bit more sensibly personally. But that's my my um, thought on things. They want to impress the marketplace by showing revenue growth. They care a lot more about revenue growth than they care about profit growth right now, which is why they switched gears to be talking profit this year, hence the $100 million in Obita discussion they have for 2017 after is going far back as I think it was 2014 where they ended the year at a loss in
0: profit because they had spent so much on starting the network up. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways to look at this, I think, is well because the short answer is yes, revenue is up. I don't know if it's sky high, but it's definitely up, especially in the last few years. And well, definitely and, and breaking the, the seven hundred million dollar mark is a big deal to them. So that 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 was a, a huge thing to them yeah. for sure. And so the criticism of of that claim when you say revenue is sky high, well, it's only sky high because of the because of the TV, which is guaranteed, and the network, which is bringing in more revenue, but you know the similar amount of profit to, to pay per view. Um, so I, what I, what I looked at was well, let's just get rid of. TV, and let's just get rid of the network, and just let's just look at everything else. And even if we look at everything else, uh, it, since 2014, revenue has been up. It was everything else was 251 million in 2014, 268 million in 2015, and 307 million in 2016. Though
1: to be fair, 2008 we did have 327 million sitting in that yeah. everything else bucket, right? What what happened so that, that year? Any ideas? Um, I would say it was a combination of having a really good home uh, home video year. Hmm. Uh, so it, that was kind of the peak for kind of home entertainment. Uh, you had a – a year where if i'm not mistaken we had a, a lot of pay-per-views going on so it was one of those years where they had like 15 or 16 they had an enormous pay-per-view of course wrestlemania in 2007 or 2008 was a a huge year just reminding myself of of the uh main event I just to make sure Orlando, i say it right wasn't it yeah that was, And that was the the Floyd versus Big Show year and that was also the year of uh under uh yeah yeah it was Floyd big show, which was it was a good but a a big big event that they had there with uh seventy thousand people and uh did over a million uh pay-per-view buys um and then I would even say I would even go as far as, as guess that that was the year that um we, we still had really good uh video game royalty contracts that was something that got cut in later years. Um, with, with the, the bankruptcies that were going on with THQ, but I think 2008 was still a good year for that. I, I mean, I didn't study the numbers in depth to look at it. The last piece is when you say you're looking at TV here, are you including TV advertising dollars? I believe so, yes. Okay. Because that, that's the one thing that a lot of people don't understand is like if you go back to the TV contract that WWF had in the late 90s, it was minuscule. But the difference was WWF got to keep a percentage of the advertising dollars that they they showed during their shows. So they had a huge advertising budget. When they moved – uh, channels to TNN and then back to Spike – I mean, sorry, back to USA. Specifically, when they moved back to USA, they forfeited all of those TV ad dollars, and they took them instead as TV rights dollars. So if you only look at purely TV rights, you get one story. If you add in the TV advertising dollars, you see that that was a huge driver during the Attitude Era because they had so many eyeballs on their product at the time. It, it does include – it does positive. Okay. It does. Perfect. Yeah. So um, – but that was one. um I can't even say what other things are in everything else that I, I, I'm jumping out right now well, that I'm the, not w Shop thinking of. WShop is doing well. Uh, v- yeah, I think is they doing had... well. I think they had started the WWE Studios around that time, and they actually did have some good revenue because this was in the old model for WWE Studios, which was um, kind of the more theatrical distribution. So when you have movies like The Marine or uh, uh, The Condemned or all those, they ended up losing a lot of money, and so they hurt a lot on the profit side. But on the other side, they they would generate more revenue as a whole versus later when they kind of just decided to kind of fund deals but only as bit players. You would have good returns, but at the same time, when Holly Berry's the call made a lot of money, they only got a percentage of that money because they weren't getting, you know, they weren't funding the whole thing the way they were doing when they were doing the other model. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it could be that was the one year that the WWE Studios model was actually generating a lot of revenue. If I don't, re- if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. I'm not looking at the spreadsheets right now. You probably open them up to get a little deeper, but. Um, but yeah, 307, it's a good number. So it, it proves that there is positive momentum. And again, where does that positive momentum come from? Well, a lot of it comes from WWE Shop. The more that they figure out how to do WWE Shop correctly, the better they do. They have changed their model in some countries, in India, in UK, in other countries. They have set up local distribution models so that you know Amazon.uk, I believe, handles WWE Shop in, for Europe. And in India, the sold shop. Do you know shop off have, top of
0: your head, if they ever break out? uh regions for w shop i don't i don't think they do do
1: that not for w shop usually um sometimes again when you watch the business partner summit you'll hear them kind of you know give little tidbits sometimes that will that will speak to which countries or regions are doing well um but yeah a lot of it comes from the fact that they've done that they've actually started to make some money on digital media in terms of both absolute dollars and on you know um uh uh even a little bit of profit on it, but just as they push more and more digital media and become a powerhouse there, that goes there. Things like video game royalties are going to go there. And so all those WWE uh, collectible games online, those mobile games, all that revenue is going to go towards that everything else bucket. And if there's anything we've really seen them expand in the last four years is that they finally got into the mobile market when it comes to things like games and downloads and in-app purchases and whatnot. So so,
0: so thumbs up, thumbs down. Revenue is sky high. You agree? Uh, slight thumbs up. He, it, it's sort of, exa- it's sort of an exaggeration to say it's, it's sky high, but it's it's up. Yeah. Uh. It, but 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 he's saying it in a, with a tone that he deserves some credit for, it, which is more questionable. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I, I would say he is a portion of the merchandising machine, just like everyone else on the the brand is, and he's um, probably the, he's
0: probably the second most important portion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And but I mean, uh, years ago, it was probably CM Punk. And years before that, it was, you know, maybe Jeff Hardy or or Randy Orton or or someone like that. You know, there's there's oftentimes the other guy besides John Cena. And right now it's Roman Reigns. Yeah, exactly. Batista, great example. So, I mean, there's a guy, right? And so somebody's in that second slot, and right now it's Roman Reigns. And a lot of times it has to do with how you're positioned in the company. And um, we, we do see that as, as vociferous as some fans may be. There's also a, a portion of fans that are supporting him and are moneta- monetarily contributing. So, uh, number three, revenue is sky high. Sure, uh, it's true. I just don't know if it's related to you, Roman. Number four, WWE can make
0: it without Cena. What do you think about this claim? I think, this, and how do we test it? We, uh, we need an alternate reality where um, where John Cena permanently quits WWE, which he will never do, and then we need to see how badly WWE is hurt in in, in whatever ways you can imagine. Um, I, I did a study last year, and I, I published an article on Seeking Alpha, uh, just looking at because it it was appearing that. John Cena wasn't working a, a full house show tour anymore. So I think he had just come back from his shoulder injury in May of last year, and uh, he was back on TV, but he wasn't picking up all the house shows. So that was our first hint that ooh, maybe, maybe John Cena's done working a, a full house show tour. Uh, so I looked at uh, I looked at a scenario where you can I did a spreadsheet basically where you can look at to various degrees what happens if John Cena stops working house shows. What happens if he stops completely? What what happens if he stops a little bit? and uh the conclusion that i came to was that he's he's worth about based on the uh the positive difference that he does make to to house shows uh he's worth about three million dollars that that's what that's the value of that difference but but that was on so that was attendance live event attendance right just based on if if there's not if if he quit the company this is just if john Cena never worked another house show again okay and so if if it's three million dollars annually um, and you got to
1: figure on top of that, was that including venue merchandise? No. but Okay, so, so
0: I would estimate – There's a point that I think I try to raise is that well, if you've got a lower attendance, if, if attendance is going to be uh, on the number of shows that Cena would work in, in a year, I don't know, let's say 80 or something like that. If he's going to work 80 shows a year and he's not going to be on those shows anymore, those shows are going to have lower attendance. That means there's going to be fewer patrons there to potentially buy uh, merchandise.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and I was even thinking there'd be less Cena merchandise because for the most part they don't push merchandise. Okay, yeah, if, for, if, you know, like if, if he's, he's not
0: with the company. Drink. Yeah, I've seen. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. They're just not going to sell it if he's not at the yeah, house yeah.
1: But I mean, you're right. I was act. I wasn't even thinking about the fact that there's less people per head to buy, and and that's usually kind of how the measure works. Is I don't remember whether it's eight bucks or ten bucks a head. You know, buying merchandise on average in a quarter. Uh, that includes both, you know, pay-per-views and TV tapings, which I think do a little bit better for uh, venue merchandise a lot of the time because oftentimes you're getting more unique merchandise or a larger selection than maybe that that's at a house show. But um, yeah, yeah, you you would definitely get hurt there too. So if he's worth three million on house shows, you got to figure he's worth at least another million on merch, yeah. right? You know, and and much more than
0: that as as compounding over the years. Three point five million to be a little more precise.
1: So – but that's an interesting – so there's a revenue hit. There was an attendance hit. I think you always run the question of now I am – that's like kind of saying what would have happened if Shane McMahon died in that that helicopter crash or what would have happened if Vince McMahon had gone to jail over steroids distribution. You, you, you open up these little boxes and of varying degrees, different development actions happen, right? So one of them would be um, – You could argue John Cena is playing a significant role in their expansion in China right now. He's going all the way to Shenzhen, I believe, to work the event that they're having uh, tomorrow, Uh, even though he's not part of that brand. Because it's really important that John Cena, who is not only the most popular probably athlete in WWE there, but also the most but is been studying Mandarin for years and years um, and is is probably going to be the best received as well in this case. It, that you you it hurts your ability to expand in that marketplace if you lose such a charismatic and
0: invested person like that, right? Yeah, I mean he he speaks fluent Mandarin, and I wonder like too to what degree you could give Cena some credit for the the TV rights fees. Let's say you know they're they're going to have to negotiate this this deal pretty soon, or maybe they already are. You know, having some preliminary talks. You know, what if John Cena? He's not, this is obviously not going to happen, but what if John Cena just up and quit WWE? And just said I'm just going to make movies now or something.
1: Oh yeah, I think the July Fourth ratings are a great example of that, where yeah. you can say, "Look, the and, they put him and, and, on and the if show." On NBC and NBC
0: Universal, I'm like, well, "All right, well, you, you guys kind of lost your big star in John Cena. That's going to be leverage for NBC Universal to to drive a lower price."
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and just even the cross promotion because sometimes these guys do do you know appearances on other people's
0: shows and, and things. And, you and know, the back- comparison to make is let's imagine if similar. Were to happen for Roman Reigns? What if Roman Reigns decided to quit wrestling, uh, and w- would NBC Universal be able to make as as good of an argument that they should pay WWE a little bit less for for TV rights fees? Uh, may- maybe, maybe there's an argument there, but I don't think it's as as strong of an argument as as there is for Cena.
1: Though again, it would probably be more accurate to compare 2005 Cena when WWE is trying to leave Viacom and go back to USA. And say, what was the leverage for Cena at that point in that transaction compared to today? Because you're talking about someone three years into their career versus someone 15 years into their career. Now, I don't think Roman Reigns is going to have an illustrious 15-year career on scope with what Cena has done. I think he's going to have a good couple years here. But I don't honestly think 15 years from now he's going to be the top guy. Or 12 years from now he's going to be the top guy. The way that Cena possibly could get perceived that way if, if they decided to position him as such.
0: If WWE were to, to lose Cena completely, and if they lost him in, in a scenario where he doesn't join up with some other wrestling company, I think WWE would be okay. They would still be profitable. I don't think it's going to yes, be a Yes,
1: they would make it,
0: as, they, yes, as it says. Exactly.
1: Absolutely. There is no one person that is so intangibly tied to WWE success that their
0: disappearance will completely ruin the company, even Vince McMahon.
1: Yes. As, now, as Vince
0: McMahon said on a conference call not too long ago, it's a big wheel that keeps on turning. It's not any one star. And I think that's reflective of kind of how they treat their workers and and misclassify them, but it is nonetheless true.
1: Absolutely, and and that's the case, is that Vince McMahon himself is important from a shareholder standpoint of of being you know a directional leader for this organization but he is not necessarily the linchpin that would maintain the company from from always succeeding and so there will come a day and the fact that he's made it this long I think has lessened the blow I think three or four or even six years ago it would have been very disruptive to lose a Vince McMahon I think now we see some secession Finally in place now that we have kind of a clear pecking order and the dispute between Shane and Stephanie ironed out and the um, ascension of Triple H as a executive board member. You know, you think Triple H th- is going to be a whole other. We
0: might be opening a can of worms. But do you think there's a, a dispute between Shane and Stephanie or there was some sort of power struggle there? The way I've heard it positioned,
1: and you know, you can go back to uh, Ian Frisch's article that right. he published for Vice. You know, you do really get the sense that there was a time when Shane thought this company would um, be bequeathed yeah. uh, to him and his leadership structure, and when it became very clear that was not going to happen. That was uh, demoralizing, yeah. and you know, kind of caused him to say, "I want to strike out on my own and be successful, yeah. and um, and win, you know, be successful, and maybe, and and who knows if that decision was based around I want a better family life, I want a better uh, legacy in business, I want to make it on my own, or whether I want to impress my dad? Yeah. I don't know."
0: And you think back but, to the the McFoley interview that Shane did uh, on the network, where Foley asked him about his relationship with Triple H, and he said it was quote fine.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's just like there's such a big difference between being friends with someone, being cordial with a family member and doing business with them, you know, you can put in very different situations there. And so I'm sure where they are now, they you know, the fact that my point is that Shane is back and they're working together and it's not, um, you know, th- that is very clear that Shane has a performer role and Triple H has an executive role. Right now, if Vince died, do I think that there would be a possibility that they would, you know in some way to keep this McMahon name going, you know, give Shane a, a bigger role. It's always a possibility, right? I, I, it's really hard to judge how they're going to deal with it. But I think on the flip side, I, I fully believe that they're at a place now where the stock will take a hit. If, if Vince McMahon died, especially without making it very clear what the secession line is going to be, the stock will take a hit if triple H is in charge of the company because he is not a, a veteran business leader yet. However, I think that there's ways that they can lessen that blow, and I think they've done a great job of setting up a lot of that. And as I've said many times, I don't think someone is going to inherit all of Vince McMahon's positions. Yeah. No one is going to be the chairman of the board, the CEO of the company, and the head of creative, and the head of you know every other business line reporting to him. It's not going to be the you case won't. that
0: Triple H is going to take over all of Vince McMahon's duties.
1: Yeah. And, and had Linda McMahon not joined the Trump administration, that would have been a different situation, you know, in terms of, I don't think she would still be working for WWE, but of course it would always leave that door open if, you know, there was a sudden health incident and Vince was no longer with us versus now with her position. I don't think that would happen. You know, I think very much she's, she's messaged and explained that she's beyond this. And, you know, there was years and years where, where Linda was running elements of this company and she really demonstrated how the difference between being in involved in things and running the company could be because she had very little insight input or, or thoughts on how the company would work creatively, but she had a lot of insights on how it would work as a business.
0: She took a horrible stone cold stunner too.
1: Haven't we all? Um, And so, you know, that it brings up even the discussion today of, of the second thing we would talk about, which is about the Vincent and Kevin Owens scenario, but just about, you know, would WWE be okay without Cena? It would be, Okay, it would not be great. I think WWE is stronger with Cena than without him. Same way WWE is stronger with The Rock's involvement than it is without him. I think um, Cena, to his credit and his detriment, um, is going to fill a void, right? And the problem is that it's really tough for someone else to ascend when you have that kind of thing there. That's like saying, who's going to be the next Undertaker? Well, we have an Undertaker, right? You can't have the next Undertaker when the guy is still there doing something once a year. So... You always are going to have that problem that you, you sometimes have to suffer before you can succeed in those situations. Uh, by by going without someone or a resource before you can see the the successes that come from it. But right now, WWE is comfortable with Cena. Cena is comfortable with them. And I think they will just continue to put him on the kind of um, lifetime retainer that they put, you know, Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker and a lot of other guys to just kind of keep them involved. And they obviously have a personal and emotional and fam- familial and corporate
0: connection to this company. I mean, you think about what New Japan's doing. And there's a lot of dissimilarities here, obviously, between Roman Reigns and John Cena and, uh, Kazuchio Okada and, uh, and Hiroshi Tanahashi. Um, but in the, in the last few years, um, New Japan has done, I think, a great job of transitioning from Tanahashi being the top guy to Okada. Now he's cl- clearly the top guy. And, uh, I think it's a, it's a sort of passing, it's as good of a job passing the torch that I, that I can think of in wrestling. Uh, I think you think, you think of like in, in other, uh, points in history other eras in promotions where you know a, a really top guy was supposed to ha- pass the torch on to someone like like hogan to warrior or something like that i mean you know, imagine if hogan and warrior had, had you know three wrestlemania main events in a row or something like that and maybe things would have been a little bit better Uh personalities notwithstanding yeah
1: yeah i mean i think a lot of the other good transition stories we think of come from other japanese companies you know the rise of the three musketeers or something
0: yeah and i i would i would guess that that just has something to do with the wrestling culture and that maybe it it uh, it extinguishes you know, sort of the ego problems that we run into a little bit more in uh, in American wrestling that people are. You see, it starts with the dojo thing where you've got guys who a lot of them, most of them just feel allegiance to this promotion that trained them and they won't, if, if they were trained in Big Japan, they they're, maybe they're just going to be in Big Japan forever. Their goals are not to get to the big promotion. The goal is to be a part of this company or this family or whatever. Yeah, and and it goes to the the personality and the culture too. You know, the Japanese employment till, from cradle to grave. Which, uh, which, which the actually, I- the, the, the the sort of approach that I just described it sounds similar to that the way that I think John Cena feels about WWE, where it's he is so dedicated to the company, and it's not about. He said this thing to I think in, to Jericho in an interview on the network where he said, "It's I don't love pro wrestling. I don't love this business. I love this company," and he's he's just such a gung ho soldier for them.
1: I would love to find out, you know, which of the uh, wrestlers held substantial WWE stock and, you know, raked it in. Because if I was John Cena, you know, at some point here, I would be massively negotiating with the company to (laughs) do something for me. You know, Uh, whether it's a a specialized stock sale through his talent contract or something, just because I, I do think the long term opportunity with the stock is probably higher for him. Uh, as someone who can kind of see it through and someone who is in, invested in trying to make it a success, so yeah. I, I would just love if someone asked Cena that someday. Do you ever think John Cena will end up as an executive in this company? Yes, yeah. I think. I think much like the way ja- I think. I think you know the Japanese companies are the best analogy, which is you know a lot of times you do see some of those old timers get executive positions in a professional wrestling company. Um, I think in some of those cases, they do actual back office work. You know, I don't think John Cena is going to be the guy calling up talent to find out who's available to do jobs on a Tuesday. But, um,
0: you know, I, 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 I could see him maybe if there maybe if the you know, you know passes away or something or he has a health problem, maybe somebody else ends up in a, in a CEO similar role or Stephanie McMahon's physician gets you know, she gets put into a, a, a new position or whatever in that opens up the chief brand office or or whatever. My point is I could see Cena doing the things that Stephanie McMahon does right now.
1: Yeah, I could see that. I I was thinking more even that WWE would um, earmark uh, a quarter of WWE Studios' money, and this becomes the John Cena Creative Studios project. And then John Cena's allowed to, you know, kind of run a fully owned but – fully an owned but fully independent subsidiary where he does some kind of creative entertainment, you know, development. And then that, that goes towards WWE's profits, but it's run under John's label. So he's the CEO of John Cena Creative Entertainment, but at the same time those you want revenues.
0: I, you know, if you look at his schedule And, and be like what the do creative you see? force behind a movie.
1: You see a lot of the most successful people in Hollywood aren't necessarily the people on the screen, but the people who figure out how to get financing and also make the biggest projects work, right? So you look at someone like John Favreau who who's changed kind of his direction from being an actor to being a director and you know how much more infinite money he's made on the other side of the camera and producer. And so I, I think just with Cena's experience here that he's going to see the same thing that Dwayne Johnson saw, which is you can be really successful as an actor, but also having a really successful creative studio helps you a lot. And so I think, you know, if anything, Cena's is looking at, at The Rock and saying, how is he making his money and realizing not all of it is coming strictly from acting and endorsements. A lot of it's coming from actually being the producer on a show like Ballers. Or, or producing the page movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, if that ever comes to be. Um so that that's my thought is that uh I, I can almost see them incorporating him. I mean, there's a guy named Basil DeVito, he sold a bunch of stock this last week here. I think it worked out to be like four hundred thousand or five hundred thousand dollars of stock, I calculated it to be. And his title Is something like senior business advisor to WWE, and he's an advisor to the board of directors. I don't think he's even a member of the board of directors anymore, and he's been with the company for 30-plus years and used to have a lot of positions with the company, but they've kept him on. Uh, I've always pointed to him as kind of my de facto, if Vince were uh, incapacitated, who would take over, because he's a longtime voice and someone who's who's dealt with these marketplaces forever, Um, but... Who knows in today's day and age because he's getting up there in years and uh, uh, his involvement with the business might have gone down. But, you know, I could see John Cena having a wacky title like that, too, like a, a senior business advisor strategist, you know. But it, it depends on what John wants to do. John is John is a commodity in demand more than he's a commodity that is demanding to be heard. Yep. So, you know, and that's that was the other thing is of, you know, Roman saying he can't break into Hollywood. I don't know if that's true. I've I've heard more and more and more momentum on Cena in the last few years here. Ever since um, uh, the Amy Schumer movie, you know, people just saying that they really think he has incredible charisma, star power, and, and ability to per- portray himself in a, a positive light. And of course, his television shows have been his television shows. Right? They they haven't necessarily knocked the world dead, but they're not actually that embarrassing either. You're
0: talking about Total Bellas.
1: I was thinking, t- t- uh, uh, is it American Grit or oh, uh, reality
0: TV? Yeah, yeah. America, I more yeah. Than I, yeah, I, 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 I meant that. I guess this, this is. Yeah, <laughs> technically, this is not what Reigns is saying, but I guess you could say that. Well, if he wasn't in WWE, he wouldn't be in, in these high-profile movies, and that's probably true. But, but the but saying he can't break into Hollywood seems weak. If, you know, I think Cena has proven himself much like The Rock
1: to have the it factor. You know, people identified Cena as a must-hit star the same way they identified The Rock as a must-hit star early on in their career because they got it right. They understood what what they had to do. And you can sabotage that. I mean, you can Hulk Hogan it and you can, you know, do vile things that are going to get you in trouble or you can waste it away on drugs and money and women and, and liquor and whatever else. But I, I think Cena has that natural charisma and ability that he would be successful even if he was not a professional wrestler. I think professional wrestling gives him an incredible uh, launch pad to get him where he needs to be and has helped train him to deal with the, the BS that is Hollywood uh, for better or for worse. Right. You know, he's used to a backstabbing, politically driven, um, uh, youth oriented, lying, manipulative um, state of things. So let's talk about this Vince McMahon, Kevin Owens uh, program that uh, w- was going today on, not today, but this week on SmackDown. Um, hard juice from Vince, uh, possibly because, you know, some people speculated he just bladed ahead of time and glued it up. Um, watching it, it was really, uh, uh, you know, someone stopped me at improv last night and wanted to talk about it. They were shocked by it. Really? And so it, it's, it's definitely um, – Did you watch it live? No, but I, I went on Hulu and I, I did check it out. So I mean, it's 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 I, I was, uh, visceral I, I stuff. I happened
0: to be I happened to be watching live. Um, were, you, were you surprised? Were you impressed? Yeah, I mean, it's it is stupid to take a shoot headbutt, especially at his age. But it's uh, I was very surprised. He took a hell of a frog splash too. And uh, this is probably reading too much into it, but it, it did it definitely reminded me of the CTE lawsuit that W is involved in, and, and you almost wonder if he's. You know, saying, yeah, t- take this CT lawsuit. See, I can take it. Why can't you? You know, I. Yep. <laughs> Does do you think that I think is, it's is that easy. a good look? Is that a bad look? Does it matter? I think it's easy for people to hear the
1: words WWE CT lawsuit and assume they know what it's about. And what I would always say to people is that the majority of the claims and the majority of the elements that people think are part of the CT lawsuit have already been restricted, thrown out. Not part of the statute of limitations, or not being debated right now, and so I think the general risk of a real CT lawsuit is huge. Absolutely. I think the specific risk that is in this lawsuit right now, we're getting into the nitty-gritty tax right now about whether Evan Singleton and Vita LaGrasso were properly um, warned about the injuries that they could suffer in the ring and whether they paid attention during Maroon's uh, presentations and whether they were you know, adequately um, uh, informed. A lot of it right now we're down to really technical points about that kind of stuff more than saying did Road Warrior Animal have a vital claim or not about when he was doing this or that or did Billy Jack Haynes have one over the blood match. And that's a lot of has to do with the statute of limitations and other things. To be really honest, the suit is very complex and it's hard for me sometimes to sort out which issues are still at stake because a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of motions to uh, appeal things that have been denied. But th- that, that I just want to say off the top is that I think a lot of people think that they, they read into it that, you know, at any moment the judge is going to say, well, you did this. So, therefore, I'm going to award $100 million to the families of everyone from Jimmy Snuka down to Don Leo Jonathan. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, you you, you know, know, I wasn't this, suggesting that it's something's no, going to no. happen now in the courtroom tomorrow because – But, but. I, I agree. Do I think that Vince McMahon takes seriously the threat of CTE – No, I absolutely don't because I doubt that in his lifetime he is going to change his his thought and his behavior about what it means and the possible impact of it.
0: And and we saw him apparently authorize whatever happened between Brock Lesnar and Randy Orton at SummerSlam last year. Yeah, I I don't think he's someone who
1: necessarily is going to change his thinking on all of this. I think a lot of it for him is that he recognizes that guys that get concussions are out of action – And that there's a medical need to have a procedure around how to deal with that. And just in the same way that, you know, do I think all things being equal, would he have a wellness policy? I don't really think that he does a wellness policy because he's most interested in the health and the wellness of his athletes. I think he does it because he understands as a corporation, it's very important for him to be able to have a mechanism for him to hold people accountable and for him to be able to report that this is what he does and as a reaction to some of the problems they've had in the past.
0: Let's talk about gigging. Do you, do you think so they've banned gigging and, and even on, on my local indie level we, we're not supposed to gig it, it literally says in the New York State Athletic Commission handbook no no quote unquote gigging. Um, I don't kind of wonder if you know if you just let people gig, you wouldn't have maybe you wouldn't have to do shoot headbutts and things like this to get hard way juice. It's sort of like I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm kind of making a similar argument to saying just legalize drugs and let's let's regulate it instead of you know prohibiting it and then making people do even worse things.
1: Oh, I think there's a long cry between wellness policy, no wellness policy, and blood
0: and no blood. As long as you, I, I would say, if you're gonna let people actually bleed, then you've got to have everybody do regular blood tests to make sure they don't have any communicable diseases through their blood or something like that
1: yeah and i think in general as a commission i think it's a good policy for them to say there's no blood on a show because i think again if a commission's concern is the well-being of its performers that is something that is fraught with risk yeah and is something that for theatrical effect there's other ways to achieve things that are probably um, better now. Unfortunately, wrestlers have taken worse ways to achieve things, right? right. <laughs> so instead of using fake blood, which I agreed is that's a, you know it's a fanciful idea. But my point is, as a commission, you're about the health of the people, right? And to me, just saying okay, it's okay to blade. I don't know if that's a great, great place. For, I don't think a commission can, from a defensible standpoint, come across and say sure. If you stop boxing matches because people are bleeding too much, you have to be willing to kind of apply that same standard to other athletic performances that you have under your purview. The challenge is as a commission, what is your role? And that's to ensure the health and safety of the people that are performing underneath you and that they're held to a certain standard, right? And if you look at all the commission's responsibilities, it goes around fire access, checking people's blood pressure, um making sure there's a doctor in hand, all these things uh go back to health, wellness, safety and um Uh, making sure uniformity is being applied. You can argue whether or not you think artistic performances deserve to fall under that, but I would say they are physical artistic performances and that if boxing is going to be concerned about blood, wrestling has to be concerned about blood. Now, WWE goes in a very different direction. The reason they don't want blood is because they feel that they've sold a, a package of goods to their sponsors and their sponsors don't want to see blood and so you get Pillsbury to pay for ad space because you you're not going to have a guy with a crimson mask on your television yet yeah, yeah, they, they then, did blood say, tuesday night anyway so then you say yet yeah, they did blood and that's because wrestling promoters are hypocrites they lie to you they 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 are promoters they promise one thing, and they deliver on what they think is best at that moment. And some are not good businessmen when it comes to creating reputational um, awareness and uh, longevity. And there's so many cases where wrestlers, wrestling promoters, and specifically WWF, WWE has a, a, a double-crossed people for short-term and long-term gain, Right. Going back to the days of of Bret Hart, to you know, they were just talking about the um, the dome shows uh, uh, in in the was it ninety or ninety one when Hogan came over and Warrior was the champion, and it was the whole thing about how there had been a title switch and Baba felt betrayed that he hadn't been told by Vince ahead of time that there was a title switch uh, coming, and so you know, there's reasons that people do what they do, and they're always risking reputational, monetary. And um, any other, you know, sometimes legal (laughs) things when they they betray it. And so you're just weighing those risks. And some people have a very different risk tolerance. And so I think for Vince McMahon, his risk tolerance is, I don't want someone else messing things up for me. I will mess things up for me. And maybe there's certain people that I'm okay with messing things up for me. So I think it's pretty clear they have a very high risk tolerance on Brock Lesnar, right? The fact that they're ignoring his drug failure in UFC. The fact that they let him bust open Randy Orton. It it goes to show they have a pretty high tolerance for what they're going to deal with for Brock Lesnar. And then you you can look at someone else and say, why did Titus O'Neil get suspended for whatever number of days it was for grabbing Vince McMahon's arm in a playful manner? I secretly think that might also relate to that swerved lawsuit where you know he beat the crap out of a uh, a cameraman by kicking him uh, yeah. after getting uh,
0: shocked so i wouldn't a, be a sur- last draw thing all right you're suspended that's
1: not- i wouldn't be surprised if one was related to the other that that's a conspiracy theory coming from mukigana but i wouldn't be surprised if the reason titus got suspended was for more than just grabbing his arm but you could also say here you know now this is getting out or this is already out i'm disappointed with you and, and so you could say he has very low risk tolerance for for other people and so I just – to me, it comes down to that, which is wrestling promoters are inconsistent liars. That happens all the time. And I think uh, from a business standpoint, if you were to go ask Michelle Wilson, is this the way to do things, she would say absolutely not. Um, the same way when you go to the old marketing executive, um, the one who was quoted in that that article from Ian Frisch. I'm trying to remember now um, the name. The woman who said she ended up with um, a, a bag of uh, uh, Vince's hair at one point. Oh what was her name? She was the old marketing person, but if you were to go to her, of course, she would be aghast. She was always aghast and and she expresses that very clearly in the article that there was lots of times that she felt that the company was kind of double crossing her or versus what she had told people was going to happen or how the company was going to operate and you know the laws don't apply to the McMahons and so I'm I'm not as shocked, I guess, as some people are, but I can see absolutely why Vince McMahon would tell his wrestlers he doesn't want them bleeding and blading. And at the same time, he turns a blind eye on certain cases because he that's just his risk tolerance. And I think he's always ready to take a risk on himself that he's not ready to take a risk on somebody else. And I think there's a, a chosen few people that he has uh, willfully or unwillfully turned a blind eye to. And I think Brock Lesnar is being you know kind of the, the epitome of that in terms of their their connection and their relationship with him. So uh I, I wanna get back to one thing before we get back into this, which was um the WWCT lawsuit. So there was a, a offer to the, a settlement agreement um meeting that they had a couple weeks ago. And uh surprise to no one, they did not settle. And uh Kairos Constantine, Constantine Kairos his real name, um it publishes a blog which you know, a lot of people don't realize that's out there. Even I, who follows this case pretty darn close, forget this out there. It's called like uh, – I think it's WWEconcussionlawsuit.com. No, what is it? I'll have to look it up in a second here. But um, one thing he wrote, which was interesting so – let me get the actual website – is WWEconcussionlawsuitnews.com. And he wrote his 10 things that he wanted – out of this settlement agreement and he said these are the what do we want this is a basic summary of the ideas for resolving this case number one full health insurance for all the plaintiffs and their families who do not have it cannot afford it and supplemental policies for people on medicare and medicaid number two lump sum disability and or disability payments based on the medical diagnosis in part for the number of wwe ecw wcw matches And then offset by SSDI, SSI, Social Security, Disability Income, Social Security Income. Uh, Number three, WWE should pay for medical monitoring for CTE for all plaintiffs. Number four, additional payouts for the diagnosed neurological conditions for plaintiffs with qualifying diagnoses, real issues discovered by a doctor. Um, Number five, WWE should pay for the comprehensive mortality, death rate in wrestling study with a view to help lower it. Number six, Uh, Program to build and improve the outreach to wrestlers in need, expanding the drug and alcohol program, and tie it into overall medical care. Number seven, fair royalty payments and a full accounting to all plaintiffs. Number eight, WWE should correctly classify its wrestlers as employees. Number nine, WWE should finance a wrestler-specific CTE research, unlike just giving millions to other sports military CTE studies. And number ten, WWE should give lump sum payouts to plaintiffs with CTE diagnosis after their death. So those were the ten things that the plaintiff said that they wanted. So, so I so just they're saying to, if you,
0: Constantine Carlos is saying if you give us some combination of these ten things, maybe we'll drop this lawsuit. Essentially, he's saying that's what we came and asked for in the settlement agreement is that these would be the things that would
1: then cause us to um, cease this lawsuit, cease seeking class action lawsuits, cease other things. Some of these are part of what I would call the WWCT lawsuit. Some of these are completely out of scope, like the royalty payments piece completely out of scope of this lawsuit there is the royalties lawsuit that bagwell and levy are doing right now but this is not in scope for the ct lawsuit really they're they're trying to very like they work it in basically saying here's a match of you getting head trauma we are making money off that match therefore we you have made money off my head trauma therefore you owe me some of that money so you could say they're kind of looping back to this to the royalty argument but they're not necessarily saying it's because you showed a match of me it's more because you gained revenue by using footage of me doing something um that contributed to my cte yes or to my 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 drama trauma as a person you know you can see that they're they're focused on cte but they're also focused on the idea of health coverage and whatnot and and again it's 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 interesting because this is the first time i've actually seen a concise list of you know what would it take to get me to settle which is a lot different than what am i asking for in this lawsuit because one is you know it's it's very hard to ask for a lot of these things in the lawsuit as much as it is capable to say as a settlement can we agree to both do this wwe has no interest in going in this direction so I'm i'm not saying that this is going to happen but i thought it was a Very helpful primer and something, again, very underreported by the wrestling media about what do they want and what would they be willing to settle for and what is it. And you can see a lot of the same themes here, right? Medical coverage, money, and um, some uh, uh, studies done about wrestling to prove whether or not is there a higher mortality and what causes that mortality, what causes CTE, and how can we treat people for CTE in their lifetime. And so for some of it I think it's very reasonable things that WWE could make as adjustments to their program. I do I could see a world where they would create better monitoring for retired wrestlers who want it who are afraid of getting CTE. I don't see a world where they are providing health insurance for all their employees, especially past employees and you meet independent contractors, right? Yes. <laughs> so, um, but I, I know we got a little all over the place here talking about blood, talking about yeah. CT case. But well, you, I, you I should just write
0: wanna... something about that. This is undercover, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure if you wrote something, if you have time, uh, someone would pay you something for that.
1: That is a that is an interesting point. And uh, as always, I, I, am fully disclosing my sources, my information, and and opening it up to the fans of the show to undercut me. This is, I think, the 2017 is the year of undercut Mukigana. And uh, I, I continue my offer that if you want to read Chris Jericho's book and criticize it, if you want to write about WWCT lawsuits, or if you want to uh, listen to a conference call and uh, uh, transcribe it, uh, all of these options are open to you in this brave new world of ours. Mm-hmm. Speaking of brave new worlds, uh, brave starts with a B. Other things start with B, mm-hmm. like the courtroom battles that Vince McMahon been in, the fact that he is B with a billionaire, mm-hmm. and Kevin Owens is
0: going to end up B. <laughs> bankrupt. That's right. So Vince McMahon said on SmackDown before he took the shoot, headbutt, and whatnot. Apparently, Kevin Owens was threatening some sort of lawsuit uh, towards WWE, and Vince McMahon came out and cut this promo on him saying that WWE has, or that he, at least, has never lost a lawsuit or a, quote, courtroom battle. He also said that he is a billionaire. He claimed that Kevin Owens would go bankrupt if he actually tried to sue WWE. So those are the three things we're going to investigate here.
1: So, number one, Vince McMahon, WWE, has never lost a lawsuit or courtroom battle. Um, interesting uh, a phraseology. Uh, depends on if you're talking domestically or internationally. So, I'll start off with that. Depends on what you consider a settlement. It depends on what you consider a loss, I guess, in his yes, words. Yes, exactly. In many cases, WWE has settled the case to make it go away. So... When a fan gets injured because two people are brawling in the crowd and someone gets hurt, does uh, WWE settle to make that go away? Probably. We don't always have great examples of that. Does WWE lose lawsuits? Yes. When uh, the Rockers uh, paralyzed uh, Charles Austin uh, on a rocker dropper and were awarded millions and millions of dollars – it was found to be liable for many different people. It was liable for WWF. It was liable for Marty Jannetty. It was liable for Shawn Michaels. And I think even maybe the agent in the case might have been partially liable. And that money in the Florida court was was you know set, and then it was reduced over time, but there was a payment. And I know WWF, for instance, covered a large portion of that as part of their insurance payment. When Owen Hart died, and there was lawsuits over that, uh, WWE's insurance settled and and dealt with that. In the in the the Austin case, they actually lost the case as far as I can you know kind of follow the paper trail. In that the judge ordered that there be a payment. Uh, in the the Owen Hart case, they settled to an amount, but you would say definitely there was a lawsuit over it. There's many cases WWE has successfully won. They have sued television partners that haven't paid them, like uh, CTH in Thailand or in um. Uh, um, or, uh, they, they've sued, um, licensees that have illegally used the license to do other things. So, uh, you know, when there was a licensee, uh, I think it was in France and it started to sell like products in a different country that it wasn't supposed to or bootleg products. It, it got sued, you know, they've won lots of those cases. They have, um, argued lots of trademarks and copyrights with people they've argued cases that have basically gone nowhere so the whole wcw versus wwf um uh trademark license you know in terms of where they were claiming that razor ramon and diesel were essentially playing those same characters on wcw television pretending to work for wwf even though they had wcw li- contracts that was a lawsuit and as far as I remember, that one basically was wrestled to a draw <laughs> where uh, you know, Ultimate Warrior sued WWE many, many times. And depending on the court and whatnot, there was different outcomes. And a lot of times they ended up with a settlement. Um,
0: I guess you could argue that the way Vince is saying this, it, it, he probably means he's never lost a lawsuit as a defendant as opposed to a, a plaintiff.
1: Yeah. And I don't even know if that's true. I really don't. I mean, you could say, yes, he won the, uh, the the steroid distribution case, fell to pieces. And so you could say he won that. You could say, though, that the way the, the WWF not being called WWF is for a very specific reason. They made an agreement with the World Wildlife Foundation. They agreed not to use the letters WWF and in international marketing in a certain way. They signed a letter. I think it was 94 um, or 92 or 94, I, I put it up a couple weeks ago on my, my Twitter. And if you're a member of the pro wrestling history, legal archive that I keep with David Bix Span, um, the, the article, the information is in there as well. And basically, um, when they continued to use the letters WWF and in international marketing, they were, uh, sued and then it was held up in, in UK court, that basically that they were in violation of this and they couldn't do it anymore. And so that's why they had to switch to WWFE and then eventually WWE, or now technically they're still World Wrestling Entertainment Incorporated.
0: So the a lawsuit with the World Wildlife Fund. That is a lawsuit that WWE lost.
1: It's an international trademark <laughs> that they lost, which involved a lawsuit. Yeah, I would say they lost that one. Um, I would definitely say they, uh, they lost... Let me think of other. Oh, I had another one that I was just thinking of. Um, I might have to go to my archive here. To uh, this is just off the top of my head. I'm mentioning most of these. Uh, they lost the Ventura lawsuit. Uh, you know about how much money they owed royalties to Jesse Ventura. Uh, that went all the way to a, a verdict and was was upheld.
0: Um, so that's a great Which example. is why Jesse Ventura is edited out of certain DVDs uh, as a commentator,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. And so that's a great example of one where they lost a big one. Um, they lost, uh, you know, the, some of the ones that they did with Marvel. They they kind of went back and forth where they would sue Marvel or Marvel would sue them over the word Hulk because they would set up agreements. But then, like for instance, when WWF bought WCW, there was an argument basically of whether WCW's agreement would then apply to WWF's usage of Hulk Hogan.
0: You always remember um, like playing the old video games. Any video games that Hulk Hogan was included in, and you'd see the credits or whatever at the beginning or the end or something, and you'd see all this stuff about. You know, Hulk Hogan is a a trademark of Marvel or whatever, and then uh, that's what it was about. What about, you know, the CM Punk subpoena lawsuit I was just talking about? You could
1: argue they didn't want to supply any records to CM Punk. In the end, the judge found they did have to, and the judge found that CM Punk had to pay a certain amount for it. Um, Do I think they lost that lawsuit? Well, they'll have to—they're compelled to produce those records— so they certainly didn't win it because they didn't get around that. On the flip side, um, you know you're you're complying with a court order, right? So is that losing a battle or not? Do I think that they've lost a you know a a striking blow? I think the trademark is probably the biggest case that I can think of where they've had a serious serious blow that's affected them. I would also say that things like the um, the Austin verdict and uh, to and maybe even the Owen Hart verdict to some degree um, really hurt them monetarily. The Austin uh, verdict? The Charles Austin. Oh, okay. Paper, okay. okay. Uh, not, not Steve yes. Austin. Okay. No, not Steve Austin. Okay. Um, I would say, uh, you know, the, there's cases where they've done settlements with people. So and was there a lawsuit over the death of
0: Owen Hart that actually had a, a judgment? Uh,
1: there was a lawsuit over the death of Owen Hart in Kansas City. And as I recall, they, they negotiated a settlement amount and then WWE... F WWE countersued the maker of the clip that was used and the rigging company that set it up and they offset some of the money there. And I think insurance paid some of the money as well. And the plaintiff so,
0: here was his family, right?
1: Was Martha. The plaintiff was Martha and his family. Yes. Um, so there was that. So So again, they settled for an amount of money. Um, if you want to say that you know, giving a, millions and millions of dollars to someone, whether or not insurance covers it, is a loss or a win, they certainly didn't get out of it. Um, and then if you look at the financial disclosures, you'll actually see uh, examples where they talk about this amount of money was paid out, this was covered by our insurance, or this was the portion not covered by our insurance. So there, there's a lot of that that went on. Um, there was later lawsuits from Martha Hart where she sued over the use of saying that she wasn't getting royalties and and the use of of Owen's stuff in um, – there's kind of two different suits. One over kind of saying that they weren't allowed to use some of the footage, uh, like the family pictures, and then some of it trying to say that she wasn't getting paid royalties. And she didn't really win those cases. I think they again found a settlement there to make her kind of uh, cease. but. She wasn't doing great in that lawsuit, as far as I recalled, or the court records show. But I mean, um, you know, the ECW when they bought those assets, they were sued by Todd Gordon and people about whether it was fair, and they won those. So they win a lot of lawsuits. Jerry McDevitt is a bulldog, and he has certainly gotten lots and lots of cases dismissed. You know, when when you look at his case of when did he start, his first case with WWF, I believe, was um, defending Jim Nighthawk against a stewardess who said that I he like
0: say, I groped he, or attacked her. He's been with WB between the sheets. Taught me that he's been with WB since I think 1987, which is when the incident that you're that you're talking about happened.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it goes there. You, you could say uh, WWF. You know, they they sued over a lot of the things that happened with uh, Schenker and Bell, where they were setting up kind of a corrupt kickback scheme around THQ and royalties and 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 whatnot and. Um, you know, that became a federal case because those guys were being prosecuted by the u s. government. But at the same time, WWF was trying to get some relief. And I don't recall them necessarily winning so much in that case, especially because recently um some of the uh, sentencing, I think, got reduced um in that case. Uh, for those guys based on on that there's security fraud cases that have come against WWF for the most part They've done well in those, you know They didn't lose the big one uh, That came about the big stock drop after the domestic TV rights numbers for NBC were lower than expected They didn't lose the one against the initial IPO filing as far as I know but they might have had to pay out some money uh, as part of a settlement there too So okay. Yeah, a lot of cases. I, can I say? I mean, they won the Bozell cases where Brent Bozell was was talking about them and they were complaining about that. Um, for the most part, they won those, as far as I can tell. Um, Who, but yeah, who's, who's the Brent right, Bozell. Oh, the Heron, the the head of the Parents Television Council. Oh, they will go all the PTC. Yes, and so that why do you, why do you think the right to protest or right to right to censor that, right to censor RTC started was was obviously a, a response right.
0: to the PTC so getting his aggressions out.
1: Yeah. So uh, that but I I would even say, you know, there's cases where we've seen uh, with the warrior suits that just went on and on and on and on um, before they were settled. Those were not going the best for WWF in some cases, but um, we don't you know, there's times they back down. They obviously got some strongly worded letters from someone like Sinclair at ROH saying that they shouldn't tamper with talent. And those contract tampering things did did play a role in uh, WWE becoming very gun shy about hiring Ring of Honor talent for years and now. It sounds
0: like they made a settlement with CM Punk after he left, didn't they?
1: Mm.
0: They came to an agreement. That, that, was, uh, that I don't know. I feel like that was strongly implied in the Cabana interviews.
1: I think that there was. I mean, when you look at at the records, especially the subpoena records, kind of that create an additional narrative to that. Basically, it shows that CM Punk left the company. And then at some point he was expected to come back to work, right? Because basically he didn't come back to work. And so then I think there was basically a disagreement about what does it mean to – you know what, what does it mean for the rest of his contract? How does he get out of this? And in addition, if you look at the trademark records for CM Punk, WWE had registered them and then at a certain point they signed them over to him a couple months later. And so arguably – All of this came from the fact that WWE came up with a a settlement with him in terms of how to end a dispute over how he would leave his employment with WWE. And the subpoena kind of references this saying, like, on a certain day, I think it was June or something, that they they came to a conclusion on his contract and agreed to basically close it out. And we saw the same thing. You know, I think he was was released
0: on his wedding day, as the story goes. Yes. uh,
1: uh, That's possible.
0: I don't know. if that I believe it was June or July of that year.
1: Okay, then then that 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 does um, line up uh, with some of the records in the subpoena case. There's a little bit there's kind of hints of it talking about, you know, Mr. Punk left and in well not Mr. Punk, Mr. Brooks left, you know, in January and um, after and, you know, claimed he was injured or something like that. And then after so many weeks, you know, then we're in a different state because they have policies in their contract that basically say how many weeks you can do this or do that. And uh, same with Ray Mysterio, they were holding Ray to a contract that basically said, if you're injured, we can count every week that you're injured and add it to the end of your contract. And in theory, I think you could say that that would force someone, if they were injured on day one of their contract, they could be held to probably twice the length of their contract, so a three-year contract become a six-year contract. But you know, there's different interpretations about whether that kind of language was right, and I, I think Ray Mysterio also sent wrong strongly worded letters. And again. Is a lawsuit the same as a strongly worded legal letter? No. So has WWE lost a courtroom lawsuit? Yes, for sure. In their lifetime, they have. Internationally, they have. Domestically, I'm positive there are cases where they have been a defendant as one of many defendants, and they have not come out on top. They have paid money in settlements, and I do believe there are court cases that they have lost, such as the Ventura one, even though those are being appealed. Or they were appealed and, for the most part, upheld.
0: And, and again, we're not trying to say, "Oh, gotcha, Vince is wrong; he's lying to you." But the, well, other than the thing you said before, but but that you know, so this raises some interesting questions, and let's you know, let's try to answer them for real. So,
1: I, I think I went through pretty pretty in depth there. That WWE Vince McMahon WWE has never lost a lawsuit or courtroom battle. If you're more interested in more information, contact me on Twitter at Mukigana, and for a uh, a funding donation, uh, we can give you access to the archive of all the information I have around WWE lawsuits. I have dozens and dozens and dozens of lawsuits, um, hundreds, you know, if you want to just count like things that I only have one or two files for, but I have dozens that I have very in-depth files on And the total number of files that are probably in this directory, including some government files and things like everything from Chris Benoit's citizenship, uh, you know, immigration status papers to, uh, you know, copies of from the George Bush library where uh, there was the retirement show that was going on in Texas and, uh, uh, you know, the correspondence that was going back and forth with that. Um, So a lot of stuff is the short answer that is there's a lot of stuff i have on that if you're actually interested in more information i'm looking up now just to see how big that archive is today um just how many how many it is oh lord (laughs) that can't be right it says it's 2.7 gigs but that seems enormous maybe it is maybe it really is 2.7 gigs but some some of those pdfs maybe they got illustrations in them yeah. Look at that. Just on lawsuits alone, it's 1.7 gigs. So that's 2000 files. So yeah, if you're interested in the 2000 files that I've, I've put together so far, just on lawsuits alone, and then some government files and some law journal articles and other things, contact me and for a donation, um, to the prize, because it, it costs a lot of money to get all these files. Um, cause court systems aren't cheap and they don't want to negotiate. <laughs> so, uh, I have lost many of those court battles. Um, but uh, so that's number one. Number two is
0: Vince McMahon is a billionaire. I'll let you answer this. So if we look at the market capital of WWE, and I don't know a ton about finance and business in in, in this regard, but I would, I would think of the market capital as maybe kind of the minimum that this company would sell for if it were to be sold. And would you agree with that much? That's to say, if someone were to
1: buy all the shares today. Yeah how much it would cost now when someone does buy shares oftentimes they have to pay higher they have to pay a premium to basically entice people to sell it i'll put it that way so usually you trade at a a multiple of your market cap market cap if i'm not mistaken so hence that's why ufc would you know be selling for four billion dollars even if they're not worth nearly four billion dollars um, it's just saying that that's the amount of money that it takes to get someone to do it. And so oftentimes you do trade at anywhere from, you know, one and a half to four times as much, you know, so that I, that would be, that would be the very low end, but that would be the cost. If you could buy every share from everybody today and the stock price didn't change somehow in that transaction. Yeah.
0: So the, the current market capital as of Friday, uh, for WWE is $1.73 billion. So, Almost two billion dollars I'm
1: yeah. careful to say almost two billion dollars because they would love for it to be two billion dollars and
0: we're still 25 percent off but, you know we're, we're still a percentage off from that so but if you take Vince McMahon's portion of shares which is about he owns about 46 percent of the stock of course he owns way more of the voting control because his shares are worth 10 times the voting power of, of common shares so anyway he owns about 46 percent of the stock which is worth about almost 800 million dollars. So I guess the question is, does Vince McMahon have two hundred million dollars in his bank account?
1: Well, and he gets eight so he has that much and then how much does he make in dividends every year? In
0: something dividends like, he makes something like seventeen point seven million dollars. Yeah.
1: So conservative, per year. And then he conservatively makes about a, he makes yeah, And then he makes about another three
0: million dollars right? in his executive pay as an employee. Maybe he makes a little bit more as a talent, I don't know. Probably not very much.
1: I, I don't think he has a talent contract. Yeah. I really don't. Especially I really as
0: infrequently as he appears now.
1: Well, not only that, because he is an officer and all officers have to file their contracts uh, with the SEC.
0: Yeah.
1: Um when they have that. And so in the past we saw Vince McMahon filing that contract, he no longer files it. The only people that I know that have uh, contracts now is Vince I'm sorry, is Shane is Paul and Stephanie. And we know Shane has one because they mention it because he's a familial relation that has a contract. And so they also mention that one in the disclosure forms. But those are the only three people I am aware of that have any kind of performer contract.
0: He's making $17 million per year lately. So I don't know.
1: Well, and then you get to the idea of saying, does he have $200 million worth of assets, right? Right. So an asset is a house. And a place and an interest. And he absolutely has some large real estate holdings. We know that um, he has uh, a lot of other things. You know, we can we also look at, you know, when when um, uh, the Linda McMahon uh, went and was joined the SBA, the small business administration, she had to file some financial disclosure things and she chose to disclose a lot. And in that she disclosed all of her holdings and we don't get exact amounts from those holdings because, um, they're oftentimes say, is it greater than $5,000? Is it greater than, you know, hundred thousand dollars or whatever the, the limits are. But for, for those, uh, which I think I actually put some of those documents in here in my, uh, drive, uh, we got an idea of how much money that she had. And I recall it being that she was also being considered a certified billionaire based on the information she disclosed at that time. So uh, let me look quickly, go to the government. And that would include the,
0: ass- the assets yeah. that she owns together with Vince. Yes.
1: Yeah. So if I go here to government and I go to ooh, Linda McMahon, SBA and i go to public disclosure report there's basically a list of all the things that she has and it includes you know all of her holdings for stock and all her holdings for retirement accounts and everything like that and there's 299 different things that she holds and it ranges everything from you know um holding certain energy stocks To uh, uh, accounts, but you know she has some. So it tells uh, you all the all the stock that she owns, all the particular mm -hmm. companies that she invests in. It it does, though some of them, of course, are like you know mutual fund type things. So you know that you're not going to know all the companies. What year is this from? Uh, it it would be from uh, well she filed it in January, so it's it's basically 2016. But again, it's it's all ranges. So I mean, you can see that she has a. A BlackRock Health Sciences Fund investment that is somewhere between a quarter million and half a million dollars, it says, you know. And she has uh, tiny amounts of, of something like a tech corp that she owns that's worth between $1,000 and $15,000 amount. And then it even has things like her savings account and whatnot on here. So, yeah, she she did all that. I know the New York Times, I think it was, did a piece where they, you know, added up the value for everybody who gave these and kind of said, what were the ranges of these people's value? I'm just trying to see if I can find that
0: piece. And Forbes, Forbes really by the way, says Vince is worth one point two six billion dollars.
1: Yeah. The Connecticut Post on uh, April 4th, published a piece that Linda and Vince McMahon disclosed billions in assets. And it said that her, um, her disclosure form showed between $938 $1.1 $1. $1 at the time. So, uh, yeah, I think he's a certified billionaire when you assume the amount of stock that he's holding and the control he has over that stock and however it is that they're valuing that stock. Because, of course, as the price goes up and down, it's worth different amounts. But uh, on paper, he's a billionaire – Oftentimes, because I think the other piece is when you were counting Vince's shares, you probably weren't adding up all of um, Linda's shares. And, you know, in a sense, they're together. So we're saying,
0: yes, Vince McMahon is a billionaire.
1: I think he is close enough to a billionaire to count in the situation. I don't know if he could liquidate one billion dollars worth of assets, but I think he could liquidate one hundred million dollars worth of assets if needed.
0: I think if he just sold the company, he could come away with from it with a billion dollars cash possibly possibly
1: possibly i think you know i don't know about cash but he could the the challenge would be you know if vince mcmahon is selling the company does that put such a taint on it that people get nervous about why they would be buying it for that much
0: but then again you got the, the fantasies about oh what if disney bought them what if some big media company bought them and how it could be really good for the company
1: I think if you were to sell it today with the TV rights, deal still in place, absolutely. If two years from now, before you had announced any TV deals, you went out there and tried to sell it, it might be a much harder sell if people did not know. How they would be uncertainty about revenue.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yep. So uh, claim number two, uh, I, I will give Vince uh, the credit there. And number three, Kevin Owens would go bankrupt trying to sue WWE. Yeah.
0: Do you want to tackle this one, or do you want me to get one? it? I do not want to tackle this one. So I guess, I guess, how much money does Kev- we got to figure out? How much money does Kevin Owens have, and how much money would it actually cost him to sue WWE in whatever way he said he was going to sue them?
1: Okay, so let's put this in a different perspective. Let's put it in a real world perspective of one of these wrestlers who today is suing WWE. And they have uncertain amount of income. Many of them are are probably very low on income, which is possibly motivating some of their desire to get involved in this lawsuit. And they have a fierce adversary. They have their personal claims to why they're getting there, meaning that, you know, you're not suing on behalf of a – Family member, but this is people themselves saying, I used to work for you as a company. I got hurt. I I deserve royalties or I deserve medical coverage or whatever it is. How are they financing their lawsuit? Well, the majority of these lawsuits, the royalties lawsuit and the CT lawsuit, as far as we can tell, are being done on a contingency basis. Do you know what a contingency basis is? Tell us what it is. Well, it is in in law firm terms basically means at the end of the case – If there is a windfall, meaning money being paid out, we would get covered as a proportion of that. So when you think about lawyers' fees, that's usually what they mean by that, is that it was done on a contingency basis. When there's finally a settlement, a portion of that settlement will go back to the law firm. And in many cases, it becomes a huge cascading effect, because a lot of times it gets attached to the partners that work on a case, and those partners might not even work for the same law firms over time. Uh, And so sometimes you have to end up paying to originators, people, you know, who might have gathered the name. So a lot of times those those people on television who, you know, say, give us a call if you've been in an accident or whatnot. Those aren't the people that represent you. They're originators. They're there just to aggregate and find somebody else to deal with your case. And they get a cut of that. And um, class action, you know, all the different people that got involved down the chain, especially as you move to different areas of expertise, are going to get cuts of that. So that's why those fees can also be so large. We're seeing an issue with this today in the Bagwell-Levy royalties lawsuit. And I've talked about
0: this on the other Here's shows. Real quick, There's, so someone like Vito Lagrasso, he's not paying Constantine Kairos any money at this point?
1: I would believe – That for the most part, this lawsuit with those lawyers are probably on contingency. I cannot say that every step of the way, every lawyer has been on contingency because many of these cases were filed in different states at different times. So does Billy Jack Haynes lawyer, was he on contingency was Vito's New Jersey lawyers or the Pennsylvania lawyers that Singleton was using originally, or they on contingency. I don't know, but the, the vast kind of structure that exists today, I believe is a contingency construction for this. And I was hypothetically believing this until I actually saw some evidence in the Bagwell Levy case where they basically had a, associate lawyer who was working on their case he left their firm he joined a different firm and basically bagwell and levy said we don't want to work with you old firm anymore we want to stay with this lawyer that we know and we want to go work with this new form firm called bruno and um basically the old firm said we're not going to hand over any of the records we are afraid we're not going to get paid and so they've been arguing, basically saying we put in all these hours of work and that you know we deserve to get paid. And so basically then they had to file things that said we promise that you get a lien on the holdings of what comes out of this case if there is something and that you will be the first one paid. Uh, Levy himself, uh, Raven, wrote a letter saying basically I'm terminating you, but I promise that you will be the first ones paid. Um, so exactly that. And I've seen it at law firm when I worked in finance that this was something that would happen. Law firms have different amounts of tolerance for this kind of risk. It's really hard to put on your books because you're holding this balance. And I mean literally – hypothetically, I worked for a firm that negotiated something with the US government on a discrimination case uh, for a large class holder thing. And I think it took 10 years. For us to like basically pay it out. Wow. And so we finally saw that that amount, you know, in 10 years. And then we had to go back to all the lawyers who ever worked on this case and then kind of prorate how much money they deserve to get from it. Um, Because at the same time, there's a difference between do lawyers get paid or do lawyer firms get paid? Because in many firms, you're getting paid regardless of what you're doing. You know, you're getting bonuses based on how much the firm makes. And so then you get into a a much larger argument about who's getting paid what for what, because sometimes people are contract lawyers, which means basically they get paid a set amount for the work that they're doing. And um, some lawyers might be getting paid because the firms might be paying them, but basically the plaintiffs aren't paying them. So would he go bankrupt trying to sue WWE? Um, My guess is probably not. Uh, It would depend on the the appetite of a lawyer to necessarily take up the case and represent him. I think at this point of time, there would be a lot of people who would actually love to have a standing professional wrestling lawyer or professional wrestling contract get get challenged in a a current way because one of the biggest obstacles everyone's had is statute of limitations. And the fact that um, Connecticut law is very business friendly, and basically if these claims are not made quickly, there's a lot of, of challenges there. We just saw with the Titus O'Neill lawsuit right now that uh Donald Anderson, who is the cameraman from Swerved who used a um, who who got kicked after a a cattle prod stunt on Titus O'Neill went wrong and basically claims that he injured his hand he had filed court he had filed the lawsuit in in California and in that case uh it, titus just basically moved it to federal court by saying i live in florida uh wwe is is based in delaware and domiciled in connecticut and so we're international you know we we're, we're not of the same state citizenship and that the amount you're asking for is more than $50,000 so it should be a federal case and so that opens up a whole different list of things and it'll be interesting to see whether or not donald anderson keeps the same lawyers you know, as he originally did. Uh, we've seen people try to be pro se or, or try to defend themselves and, you know, file things. Brian P Jack was a NXT trainee. He tried to sue WWE claiming that basically he got injured really bad in the ring and that, uh, all these guys basically were abusing him and it wasn't fair. And, The court basically threw out all the the things that he filed, and I think the lawyers, quote-unquote lawyers, he had were more like online law firms that were willing to basically file the paperwork on his behalf but not stand behind it, where you kind of fill out the forms yourself, and then you're paying for the right to basically file the forms. So did they get paid? Yeah, they got paid, but they didn't have to spend a lot of money. So depending on how good of a case he wants to build, it's hard to say. I think a lot of lawyers would love to have a current talent who's not under a statute of limitations Uh, Or, you know, within the statute of limitations, I should say, that wanted to challenge certain things that were going on in WWE, you could definitely find someone who would help them. And if, you know, the case here is that Shane McMahon punched him unprovoked, uh, hey, you know, it was on national television. It seems like you'd have a good deal.
0: Yeah. So so that's a viable lawsuit for, for Kevin Owens. He would probably not go bankrupt if he tried to sue WWE over Shane McMahon beating him up on live TV. I don't think he would go bankrupt. I don't know. I do not think he would win. I think <laughs> WWE would would settle at best. Even but, if, yeah. say he shot, say Shane shot on Kevin Owens. Uh
1: no, I, I don't think so because I think the contract that they have right now is pretty open ended about you know the the even if death occurs in the ring, <laughs> you know, as a result uh, of an it, intentional injury, yeah, or in, uh, intent to hurt somebody. You know, you'd have to prove, prove. I mean, it's interesting when you go back to like um, the the Sid lawsuits. A great example where you know years later there was a lawsuit over whether Sid Vicious was told by an agent to do a move that he wasn't comfortable with. This
0: is where he breaks the leg infamously.
1: Yeah, and and so it's the lawsuit basically between the insurance company and WCW about paying for it to say whether or not it's the agent's fault for telling someone who's not comfortable to do with something to do it. So with the Shane McMahon thing, I think it would come down to, um, who was in a position to stop this, who could expect it to happen, you know, were there signs or anything. And then also, was there any direction that Shane was secretly given? But again, you'd have to get into, you'd have to get a real lawyer on, which I am not to explain all the factors that would be looked at in terms of, of deciding a case like that. And whether this was, you know, personal injury or something else that this would fall under. Okay, so
0: so we've got the answers to the three questions, don't we?
1: Yes, he he has not lost a lawsuit battle. I'd say that's implausible. I'd say he's a billionaire. I'd say that's plausible. He would go bankrupt. It's difficult to know, but unlikely are my three answers.
0: You know, I came up with the idea to do a format like this. I figured, oh, maybe we could, you know, it'll be fast paced, and we'll go, yeah, question answer, question answer, and we'll get through it. But no, this is here we are. I don't know, over two hours later or something.
1: Not two hours. Oh yeah, can't be two hours. Oh yeah, I think it is. It's yeah. like an hour and
0: a half. Uh, yeah, we'll see.
1: Excellent. Well, uh, that's that's that. We talked about things. I got to get my lawsuit stuff off my chest. Yeah. So, you know, that's my my fun thing. Um, uh, reading material uh, for, for the viewers at home. Uh, there's an article out right now at uh, I think it's melmagazine.com called.
0: Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app.